tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie morning. Welcome along to Tip Today. 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number. Won't cost you to make a call. And Ali is looking after the programme uh, today. In fact, thanks to uh, Ali for looking after you so well last week while I was toasting my toes and all of that. Um, coming up on the show this morning, the Children's Hospital seeks yet another bailout. We have the latest from Gaza and the situation escalating, of course, further over the weekend. Free HRT could be on the way. We'll speak to Dr Mary Ryan on that. Dunn stores coming under fire for leaving the ring out of the barn. Brack the cheek. Why one business in Marketplace in Clanmel continues to stand strong. We have global politics with Thomas Conway. We have travel tales with Fergal and Ballangarry welcomes its very first community cafe. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text and WhatsApp 083 We have a lovely prize for you if you're into country music because Tipperary singer uh, Louise Morrissey is celebrating 35 years in country music on uh, Friday, November 3rd at the Talbot Hotel in Clonmel. She'll be joined on the night by a star-studded lineup. indeed. Philomena Begley will be there, Ray Lynham, Jerry Guthrie, uh, Marty Daniels, Molly O'Connell and uh, a wonderful band called the Matrimony Band. Very, very fine musicians indeed. So we have a pair of tickets to give away for that gig on the 3rd of November. It's based on your interaction with us by text and WhatsApp. And if you put Louise Morrissey at the end of your contribution, we will pop you in to the draw. It's as simple as that. Let's have a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. The Irish Daily Mail with that story that Health Minister Stephen Donnelly will require a second massive bailout to complete the National Children's Hospital or face making 30% cuts in capital expenditure. Also across the newspapers today, that story of the Irish woman who was shot dead in a suspected murder-suicide in New York. To the Irish Examiner, and their lead story is uh, surrounding the businesses damaged and destroyed last week by Storm Babbitt. Um, they could receive more than €70,000 under proposals set to go to the Cabinet. Also a couple of uh, other interesting things on the front of the examiner today. Ukrainians newly arrived in Ireland could be offered state accommodation for just three months before having to find their own place to live. And the examiner understands that the Department of the Teacher and uh, the Department of Integration are working on a new policy for those fleeing more with a memo due to go before Cabinet soon. Now, where they would find accommodation, of course, is uh, the big deal there, I would imagine. Also on the front of the examiner today, the Oireachtas uh, has the responsibility to find a legal mechanism to uh, implement a landmark recommendation from the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs uh, that possession of drugs for personal use should be effectively decriminalised. So we wonder what you think about that. The Irish Times and their lead story, uh, Israel intensifying its attacks on Gaza as it airs uh, its uh, air force continues to pound Hamas targets around the clock. Also that story 
of the flood relief payments set to exceed 70,000 for those affected. Um, the Irish Independent and their lead story, the driving licences of thousands of motorists who had vehicles towed on behalf of the Gardaí were left at the mercy of hackers in what has been described as a major data breach. So let's look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you want to make comment on any of that, 083-311-3311. As I just said, the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly will go before the Doyle this week to seek a second bailout for the embattled National Children's Hospital. The project is forecast to run out of cash soon and if the government don't provide the bailout the health department faces a 30% cut in capital expenditure now Conor Reedy is a great friend of the show and he's from Nina Needs It's A&E uh, group and uh, good morning to you Conor Fran you're welcome back on and, this wet morning and thank you very much indeed Conor and it's, it's good to be back and all of that we and were in good hands you were in the, the, the best of hands indeed Conor, <laughs> no doubt. Conor for sure um, so your thoughts this is not a surprise to you I guess to begin with um, it is a horrifying spectacle there's no other way to describe it at this stage Fran um, we had during the summer uh, and I know some might call it the silly season but we had this m- mass collective jumping up and down in this country over uh, payments within RTE, Ryan Tuberty. Uh, we're talking about sums in the tens of thousands, maybe in the hundreds of thousands. But we're talking about chicken feed money compared to what's go- been going on uh, with the health budget and with uh, the Children's Hospital and so forth. We had the political classes nearly losing their reason over RTE and demanding all sorts of accountability. And now, uh, nobody nobody seems to be uh, calling uh, stop or crying foul on these ex- extortionate numbers that we're talking about for uh, bailing out the HSE and, and indeed the Children's Hospital Project. So... Um, I have to wonder, you know, where's the anger? Where's the outrage? Where are uh, those people who were getting so angry and so outraged during the summer within the political classes? It seems maybe just to have a a pop at high-profile people like Ryan Tuberty. Um, Where are they now when when this is going on, Fran? No, we are not surprised. The HSE, for uh, as long as as it has existed, seems to be this black hole into which we pour Mm. bigger budgets each year. And yet the patient experience across many parts, not all parts, but many key crucial parts of our health service, uh, the patient experience has just not been delivered and is just not what it should be for the kind of investment that has gone in. So um, this this is absolutely dreadful. It's huge money. Um, There's a lot of political shenanigans going on behind the scenes in all of this row that's been going on over the health budget. There's no question about that. Um, The newspaper uh, reporting on this, particularly over the weekend, this weekend and last weekend, would have you believe that um, there is definitely a division in government between the two main governing parties, where uh, Fine Gael are holding the purse strings of this and 
Fianna Fáil are not getting the budget that they want for health because their minister is the line minister in question here. And uh, so that the, is so how they're playing, it's they're playing politics with the, what, what did you make of the presentations <clears throat> before PAC last uh, Thursday? Was that a sort of shoulder shrugging about budgets on that, you know? Sort of, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it is, it is just astonishing how... Um, the numbers that they're comfortable with talking about and the numbers that they're looking for and uh, it, it just, it doesn't seem to... And the numbers that are being sought, so by, both by those who are asking for it and those who are in the power to deliver it, uh, nobody seems to be um, almost bothered by what they're asking the taxpayer to do here. You know, and, and let, let's face it, it is the taxpayer that will shell out for this. Uh the performances, I, I really don't find those Eroctus committees very effective, to be honest with you. I find them increasingly ineffective. Yeah. And I suppose I've, I've paid attention um, in the past couple of years, particularly because of my interest and my um, advocacy in the term in, in, in the emergency department uh, campaign. But uh, I, I see what they achieve as revealing something, but ultimately achieving and, nothing. And because of the groups that you're involved in, I'm sure you were very interested to hear what Alan Kelly had to say. Alan, of course, is a member of uh, PAC, but he, he, he said that if the expected National Children's Hospital overrun was taken out of existing spending projections, a lot of projects would disappear under the cover of that new phrase, profiling. Now, that's going to affect... Everything, I would imagine, you know, whether it's kind of primary care centres or it's beds or it's hospitals being, you know, provided it with is, all the funding. That's that's the big danger, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it, again, it's a, it's a terrifying prospect, Fran, because you're talking about one project that has gone rogue, that has, that has spread its tentacles all over the budget um, of the health service and threatens every corner yeah. of the health budget yeah. if it, it was, as, as he says, if it was allowed to do so. How has that been allowed to happen? Who has been monitoring this? Who has been calling time on this? Um, I'm afraid it's time for the good old Irish response to a, an Irish problem. We need an inquiry into this. We need an investigation into how this has been. Where is the mismanagement that has allowed this to go from something that it was and something that was projected to be um, into something that is apparently out of control and threatening, as Alan Kelly said, and, all aspects and of the health no, care. Nobody at uh, PAC seemed to disagree that the cost could now be two and a half billion, um, which, which is just incredible, is it not? I mean, it is. I mean, look at the problems that the overspend on this going back to what, say, the original estimate was for this project, wherever that started. I know it was a lot lower than that, right? If you go to what the original projection was, allow for a bit of overspend, mm. and, you know, but if you look at what the actual overspend is going to be now on the Children's Hospital, and what that could do for so many other aspects of the health service in, in putting things right, it's, it's, it's not something I think that the public or any of us have quite gotten our heads around yet. It's very frightening because we see uh, the one aspect of the health service that I suppose I have become uh, unintentionally and, you know, against my will almost have become so familiar with 
through the last four years of Nina Needs at CME and the Midwest Hospital campaign is the emergency department uh, sector and the delivery of emergency health care in the Midwest. And we look at the, so we know some of the details, I suppose, up close and personal. We've learned that, we've studied it. And believe me, what that kind of investment could do to things like ambulances, to things like the ambulance service, to things like uh, frontline delivery, to, to things like extra extra nurses. I know they're very hard to get, but maybe paying the ones we have would be a good idea, um, paying them properly. Um, and, and all of those other things, and physical space, all of those other things that that additional overspend on the children's hospital could do. We need answers, Fran, and we need well, to know and, why and this spe- has been allowed speaking to... Speaking of answers, Connor, I mean, the HSC <laughs> and the department, they've been given an updated figure for the expected cost of the hospital. Uh, but the figure was not disclosed to the committee, which I found really incredible as well. well you know, that that's yeah, allowed I mean, to but, be the case. But again, we're back to the old question of accountability here. I mean, there are people running these organisations and there are, I've said this before, there are vast swathes of powerful bureaucracies running these organisations, both the Department of Health and the HSC. Um, and I know Bernard Gloucester is attempting to, you know, reconfigure the upper echelons of the HSE, and he's the new CEO, and he's he's attempting to to get a grip on that, by by all accounts. Um, but for years and years, the upper echelons of both of these organisations have been allowed to ride roughshod over what should be their political overlords, i.e., the Oireachtas the place to which they are should be ultimately accountable, um, which is the representative of the people. Yeah. And they have shrugged off, because you, you used that term earlier with the PAC, but they have actually shrugged off uh, the fact that they have that duty to the Oireachtas, to the people, and they have not been providing answers. We hear what we hear about the, the leadership of the Department of Health at civil service level, and we know about the abrasive nature very much. It's well documented about the abrasive nature of politic, uh, official leadership in the Department of Health, and I'm not talking about Stephen Donnelly yeah, here or, yeah. or the politicians. And we hear what we hear about that. And so if you have that mentality at work and that has been allowed to run out of control for so long, Fran, um, it's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It is. There's an, element, of, there's an element of blackmail here too, is there not? In other words, that if we don't get the bailout... Uh, there will be those cuts up to 30% in, in the capital expenditure. That, that's well, that's very is. like blackmail, isn't it? Really? There is, you know? but if, if, you look, if you look at uh, the excellent reporting of John Lee in the Mail on Sunday yeah. yesterday on this, and the Mail have taken a great lead on this in the last few weeks, um, and big respect to them for that, uh, it, it, it's, it's like a shakedown. It, it's, it's, mm. it's like blackmail, as you say, where there's Somebody is briefing uh, the media and these reporters on the fact that there's a threat to uh, the budgets of uh, care in the community for elderly folk, hitting probably the most vulnerable among us, which is those that they say we need to keep out of hospital because they, you know, were occupying beds unnecessarily in hospitals, that's causing this kind of... uh, spiralling out of control of uh, overcrowding. Yeah. So, on the other hand, then, the HSE are 
putting out these threats that, well, what's going to be hit is the budget that keeps old people, uh, elderly people, out of hospital. Uh, that the, the budget that the home care packages, the home the home health hours, um, the with elderly folks to be adapted so that they can stay in their homes rather than be in hospital. So all of these threats were put into that reporting yesterday um, and, and shared with those reporters. So there's, there's yeah. and, and other groups, by the way, Fran, it's, it's not just because other groups have spoken about this uh, to the Mail on Sunday yesterday, other advocacy, advocacy groups, we're a campaigning group, but groups like SAGE, uh, which which advocates for older people and the Irish uh, the, the consultants and all sorts of then other other groups uh, inside and outside, working inside and working outside the health service, have been very, very expressed grave grave concern about the threat of this well, withholding of the budget. The, but on the other hand, we have to know where the money goes. I'm not sure if you get any get any solace from the notion that Stephen Donnelly, he's now commissioning an in-depth report into the future costs of uh, healthcare and I think he's uh, taking into account there uh, all sorts of uh, stuff like uh, medical inflation and post-pandemic patient demand and wars in Europe and all of this uh, kind of thing. But he said a very interesting thing, Conor, and we we will finish with this. The Minister said that a supplementary health budget for next year was entirely possible, adding, we we simply do not know at this point what level of demand and inflation would be seen. So there could be no end to this. I mean, you know, we're talking blank check stuff here, really, you know. Well, we're talking in the first part of it, just before you ask the question we're talking about, and it leads on to your question, we're talking about the need for planning, for future planning taking all everything into account and that's what Sloucher Care was partly supposed to be about mm. but yeah we I mean I I don't think that anybody has a clue um how what sort of appalling vista we're facing in the midwest this winter with the emergency department situation well give us a clue on that give us a situation. clue on that as far as you can see well as far as i can see um first of all the trolley numbers have been shockingly bad all summer. Yeah. Okay? That's our first clue. Secondly, nothing, absolutely nothing has been done in terms of a serious intervention to prevent another dreadful winter at UHLED because we have no uh, alternatives at that level of emergency department delivery uh, at that grade, that model. Okay? Uh, In the Midwest, we have that emergency department serving close to 425,000 people and then we have local injury units. Nowhere in the country do we see that. We have had dreadful trolley numbers all summer, no serious interventions in terms of a big dramatic move or policy change from the Department of Health or the HSE that could pull the plug and relieve the pressure a little bit on this pressure cooker that is UHLED. Um, so if, with the numbers as they were in the summer, we don't know what it's going to be like in the winter. This is a hospital that has, that remember, for a few hours in the early days of this year, had to go off call. This is an emergency department that had to go off call in the early days of this year for several hours because it wasn't able to provide uh, full service to the population. Now, yeah. the situation this this coming winter... Will has only gotten worse. Nothing major has been done. The numbers are through the roof. They're barely below 100 a lot of days. 
Um, and we're told that, and now there's a threat to the front line. And there's a threat to those areas of community care, thanks to this budgetary mess they've gotten themselves into nationally, uh, the HSE. There's a threat to the, uh, there's a threat to so-called care in the community, uh, such as it is because it's under-resourced anyway. They're planning to pull a percentage of those resources. So so more chaos, you're saying, more chaos. We're we're predicting more chaos. And you know me, Fran, and I hope the listeners know that I am never someone who scaremongers. I, I don't do that. I base what I say on studies that we do all yes. the time as, as as groups that study this. And uh, we, we certainly do not want to put out false fear or false fright there. Um, but we watch this all year long because this is the thing in which, you know, we've become right. obsessed, I suppose. Well, so, Connor, um, Connor, I must leave it there. We're yeah. leaving on a pessimistic note, but as you say, it appears to be different. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it appears yeah. to be what's what's going to happen. Good to talk to you as always, Connor. Thank you so Thank much, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye, you know. That's Dr. Connor Reedy speaking to us uh, this morning there, and that news that uh, Stephen Donnelly is requiring a second massive bailout to uh, complete the national. Uh, Children's Hospital. If he doesn't get that, it appears that we face uh, a 30% cut in the capital expenditure. Uh, We'll take a break. Back with more in just a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Israel and America have agreed to a continued flow of aid into Gaza. White House officials say the assurance was made in a call between President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Yesterday, an aid convoy of uh, 17 trucks of supplies entered the enclave uh, following an earlier delivery of 20 lorries. But is it enough? And Breda joins me now. Breda, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Breda. I know you've been uh, watching this over the last fortnight or so. What are you making of it now? God, horrified, Fran, to be honest with you. You know, as a mother myself and as a grandmother, I'm looking at what's actually going on in Palestine at the moment. Look, we go back to the 7th of October mm. and Hamas went into Israel, as we all know, and they committed horrific crimes. And we're all well aware of that. And they have to be condemned for what they've done, and it was horrific. Yes. But equally so, we have to look at what's going on now in Palestine. And just to give you just a few of the people who are listening that may not be aware of what's actually going on, just statistically wise. At least 4,385 Palestinians have been killed Mm -hmm. in Gaza. 1,756 are children. 1,000 women and 1,000 more injured. Now, in the Ukrainian war, since it started 18 months ago, two years next February, 461 children have been killed and 923 wounded. So that's putting it in context to then, Breda. So in context, in 18 days, in 18 days, we have 461 
children in Ukraine, and we have over 1,700. So in 18 months, we have 461 children, and in 18 days in Palestine, we have over 1,700. At the moment, Fran, just so our readers or our listeners will understand this, mm. at the moment, the parents, the fathers or the mothers, whichever is left, of little children in Palestine at the moment are writing their names of their children on their bodies so that if they are killed, they would have identification of their bodies. My God. Now, this to me is absolutely horrific. And I am only an ordinary person, an ordinary mother, an ordinary grandmother. But I have to speak out about this. I may come across as a little bit nervous this morning because this is not something I do. But I am so passionate about this. I, I look at the television, I look at it, and I'm, I've been watching, I suppose, about Palestine and about Israel for a long, long time. And this didn't start just on the 7th of October. This has been going on for a number of years, over 70 years. There has always been a conflict there. And unfortunately, in my eyes, the Palestinians are the ones who have always bared the brunt of it. And they've always come out the worst place. And when I hear... Joe Biden, and this really infuriates as the president of America. He comes out and he speaks about people who have been captured, and rightly so. He has a right to do that. There is people and there is other nationalities in, that, in those people, that over 200 people that have been captured. But where is the right of the little children in Palestine? Where is the right of the little children that are being blown to pieces? And as far as now, you're concerned, you are, is anybody speaking up for No, there the is children? not. And that is exactly my reason for coming on this. The only two people that I have heard speak about this, Richard Boyd Barrett came out on Al Jazeera television, and he spoke and he condemned what was happening to the people of Palestine. And I and the other person was Michael D. Higgins. And the Israeli, Prime Minister, the Israeli ambassador came out last night and she spoke about Michael D. Higgins not having the right to say what he said. Yes, well, a lot, a lot well, of I, Irish people came out and said that uh, as well, Rita, as you know. Yes, they did. But yeah. I, but he had the right. If if President Biden has the right to say that Israel are right, why has Michael D. Higgins, not got, President Michael D. Higgins, not got the right to speak about what mm. he's seen as inhumane what's going on in Palestine? Well, you had the he president. You had the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, coming yeah. out and saying the, 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 she stands with with Israel and that Europe stands with Israel. And, and that is plain to see, uh, Fran. Sadly, mm. that is absolutely plain to see. Look, what we see on the television, Fran, what we see, it's it's like what you would see in an earthquake mm. in Palestine. It's the very same as the aftermath of an earthquake. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the pictures in front of me here now. It's like Armageddon, isn't it? It's, it's just... Armageddon. But, but, Fran, the only difference is this. You're looking at that, and that's an earthquake. When you look at an earthquake, that's a natural catastrophe. That is something that cannot, not, nothing can be done about. It's a natural catastrophe. But what's happening in Palestine at the moment is not a natural catastrophe. It's done by human hands. And you know what shocks me more than anything, Fran? What shocks me more than anything in this is that Israel, Israel, Mm -hmm. the Jews, the Jewish people, who I have great respect for, don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong, this is not about religion to me. This is about human rights. 
they know more than anyone what it is like to have gone through what they have gone through with the Nazis. So they should be well aware of what's happening. They are sending in bombs. There, there was last night 400 killed last night. They had, last night had the highest rate of bombings in Palestine. There was over 400 killed last night. There was 30 people killed on Saturday night who went to charge their mobile phones in a, in, a, in a restaurant because they had a generator. And those 30 people just wanted to charge their mobile phones and they were blown to heaven. Now, anybody listening in on this radio show this morning tells me that that is right and that is humane. I'm sorry, but I have a big problem with this. Those people have a right to live their life. They are not involved in Hamas. They are the ordinary person who wants to live their lives and are entitled to live their lives. And whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Catholic or Protestant, I do not care what religion you are. I respect everybody's right of their faith and their religion. But, you, but the one thing that everybody has in common, Fran, in every religion, we are all human. Mm. And we should all be treated with and that. In, in fairness, I mean, it would only be fair to point out, Breda, that uh, Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar would be, you know, one of the few groups of leaders who are speaking out on behalf of the Palestinians, you know, and uh, while, like yourself, they're condemning what happened where Hamas was concerned and their attack on Israel, but they are speaking out in fairness to them. They are speaking out, Fran, but I really think, I I just, I suppose I'm starting to think of how inhumane people have gone, how, especially now, like in World War II, we understood what happened and we saw what happened and it was horrific, but now in 2023, we see this. What is what is the United Nations doing? What is the EU doing? Yes. And as a matter of interest, France, there was a veto. Uh, uh, sorry, there was a, a um, oh God, it's, the word is gone for me now. But America, there was a draft resolution mm. by Brazil on Wednesday. That would have been passed only for America. And the only thing that that was going to do was allow aid, maybe to just have a cease. A, 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 a ceasefire of such, not a, you know, not the real ceasefire, but a, a you know, a just a putting down of arms for, for to allow aid to go into yes. to Palestine. Yes. But America vetoed that. Now America again has come up with their own resolution. And again, there's not a mention in that resolution about allowing time for to get humanitarian rights aid in. Right. Now, just just on a matter of of, of, of of just this as well, Fran, if you don't mind. Sure. In in Palestine, daily, they would have 500 trucks of aid gone into the Gaza Strip and into Gaza. 6,500 trucks would have been the total of the 18 days since the war started. And now we have, in those 18 days, 34 trucks. 20 went in on Saturday, and 14 were then, yeah. Right, and this is for two and a half million people, one and, and a half and million a half of them uh, displaced completely throughout, exactly. throughout Gaza. Breda, I must leave it there, but thank you so much indeed for, for speaking so well this morning, and good to talk to you, Breda. Thank you. Thank you, Frank, thank for you. taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye to you now. Bye-bye. That's uh, Breda. Let's go to Liam now. Liam, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. I was um, just listening to, to that lady there. Yes, Liam. There's not, there's not enough of us speaking similar. Uh, I, I, I know that uh, 
the Israeli ambassador to Ireland uh, was quite vocal about what President Higgins said. Very much so, uh, yeah. And I, and I think basically what he said was used in the words war crimes, if I, if I, if I remember mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And, I, and, and I think one of our own Irish well-to-do, a fellow called Paddy Cosgrave, similar words, if I, if, mm-hmm. I, if, I, if I remember right, he, and he got slated all over the world for what he said. Well, he, he had but to I, resign as a CEO that's of right, the web that's summit. Right. Yeah. Mm. That's right. Now, I'm not very well up on the whole Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, situation. From what I can relate, and you had a person on that was very good there last week or the week before, mm. well, the week before, obviously. Uh, he was very good. I can't remember his name. was Patterson. He's well tuned on this. But mm. am I correct in saying that in 1948, the American uh, acknowledged the fact that they were going to put the Israeli people in on Palestinian country as such, or am I? Am well, I, well, the, the I UK I were particularly instrumental in 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 that choice there. Yeah, after the right. war. Yeah, right. And and so what Paddy Crossgrave basically said, and and President Higgins said, is that what's going on at the moment is war crimes. So let's first of all be honest and fair and say what Hamas did was wrong. Let's mm. be fair. That yeah. That, yeah. that was wrong. Uh, we don't know why they did it or why they timed it. We're told there's different reasons why they timed it, but we do, we actually don't know because we don't actually know what to believe. We don't know who's telling the real truth. Mm. You know, it's it's like the bombing of the hospital. Who bombed the hospital? Yeah, we just don't know. Yeah. But in relation to to what Paddy Crossbury says, I have to go along with that. Now, I'm going to be really, really unfair to your listeners, but to me, an ignorant person, we'll just say there's a group of people, what we would call. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 ter- not a terrorist army, but a, but a, well, a guerrilla army mm. up in Northern Ireland. We just assume 1980, mm. and we call them the IRA just for a matter of interest. And they come and do some fierce atrocities in what we call the six counties. Yes. So Britain decides then that it's okay for them to come in and absolutely kill every person, be it as a Catholic or Protestant, regardless of what they're, they just bomb it. Is it not the same thing? Or am I that ignorant that I don't understand it's, it? It's a very interesting analogy in, in, indeed that they would take that choice of like a scorched earth policy on Northern Ireland by way of retaliation uh, for for an atrocity by the army. That's a very interesting analogy, that's for sure. And and, 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 and what, what Paddy Cosgrove said is, is, in my books is, is totally correct. It is war crimes. It's murder. It's slaughter of people that may well be very, very innocent. And, I, and I'm quite sure the people in the hospital, uh, children, they were very, very innocent. Uh, as regards other people uh, hiding, we call them a Hamas, uh, amongst the Palestinians, I don't know that. I don't know for a fact. But I do know that this conflict is going on since, what, 1948 or thereabouts. Mm. And basically the, the Israelis are just um, I can't use the word murdering up to now, but they have been intimidating the Palestinian people, going into their houses, throwing them out, taking them over, knocking them down, and then rebuilding Israeli houses. And put them. Would that be fair enough to say now, or am I, well, have I got it wrong? Well, a lot of Israeli people, a lot of Jewish people would, would claim it as their land. Uh, you know, they claim right, it's, right, it's there, it's and, and, uh, right. So, so, and, and there's been the... some awful atrocities there over the last, as you say, seventy years or so. You know, it's been. And, and for us to lie down and say nothing, it, it's wrong. I mean, uh, Breda said it there, that lady that was on beforehand, that our, our senior TDs, uh, now in fairness to Leah Rattery, he did come out and say we need a balance, to be fair. I, mm. I'm almost sure he, he did, did say yeah. that. He did, yeah. Uh, yeah. But on the contrary, our tonnage is the very, very opposite. 
And I'm almost sure he came out and said that uh, he supports what uh, Israel are doing. I'm almost sure he said that, no, which is he, totally wrong. No, I, I think he said that he supported the notion that Israel could protect itself. Um, uh, but in fairness, he did come out and say as well that, um, you know, that, that proportionate, I think, was the word that that he used at the time. But there's very little proportionate about this when you see the numbers. None whatsoever. Yeah. None whatsoever. And it's mm. wrong. And I, and I think as a nation that there has been demonstrations in different parts of the world. And I'm told that actually there's some Israeli people influencing these uh, demonstrations, even though they're Palestinian demonstrations, to say, look, what's going on in uh, Gaza is murder. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that there's some uh, certain yeah. element of the Israeli coming in and interfering with this. And what will happen is they'll be now violent at these demonstrations and they'll be all quashed fairly fast. But uh, without holding up your listeners or, or, or yourself, I just totally agree with Paddy Gosrev and I yes. totally agree with President Higgins. And I don't normally agree with President Higgins. Well, I agree with him. And, and the people who are coming out and saying that, you know, he's remiss, as in the Constitution, he's gone way past that at this stage and that, you know, that he shouldn't th- be I, speaking I, out like this. I think, Fran, that's where we're wrong. Honestly, because when we had our First Lady President, she was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely she, no doubt. She pushed the parameters, that's that's for sure, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And wasn't she right? I mean, are we just going to have a president as a figurehead like Britain has the royal family? Or do we have a president that actually has a voice and is he not entitled to his opinions? I mean, I believe in certain things he he is. Now, to say what certain things are, I don't know. But in this situation, definitely he's a hundred percent right. Well, I must I must leave it there, Liam. But uh, gr- great to talk to you, Liam. And thanks for thank your time today. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye, Janelle. We'll take a break. Back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Now, the government is set to consider free hormone replacement uh, treatment under a proposal from Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly, a bill ensuring free hormone replacement therapy for all Irish women going through menopause was introduced in the Shannon last week. Now, Dr Mary Ryan, a great friend of the show and consultant endocrinologist um, from Anina, of course, and she joins me now. Good morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Fran. How are you doing? Are I'm you ver- well? I'm very well indeed, Mary, and thanks so much for taking our call this morning. What What do you That's make not- of this proposal, Mary? No, I suppose, look, at everything is welcome that makes, um, you know, medication more more accessible for people. As you know, we had that huge HRT shortage mm. last year, and that was really because of sort of all the education about menopause and women now coming forward who wouldn't have realised that they were even going through it um, I mean, still 92% of women say that they're not uh, prepared for it or even don't know about it in spite of all the education. So hopefully that's changing. But look at, you know, it's 30 to 40 euro a month if people aren't um, on a scheme. So I suppose, uh, you know, and, and pay, buying more, you know, the way you can go up to 120 yes. euros other than that. But um, I suppose, look at, if everything is welcome that helps people, particularly at these tough times and financial times that we're in. So anything that will help people get the medication that they need is, is, is fantastic. I suppose, as I would always say, out of a lot of patients coming in that wouldn't want HRT and they'd want to go yeah. the natural route, and that's fine. And then there's some that absolutely need it. Um, so for them, for those patients, Fran, it's fantastic. 
that they're making it more accessible and more affordable. So I suppose that that can only be welcome. But um, it's wonderful that the government are finally, um, you know, as I said to you a long time ago, it, you know, it's not Adam and Eve it happened yesterday. <laughs> Women have been around for generations. And yes, it's only the last eight years we're talking menopause, which is a very natural phenomenon. But look, it's wonderful to be at where we're at. Thankfully, the government has finally come on board and they've recognised that women are equal and they're, they're now trying to make up for, for the fact that they ignored women for quite some time. And so it's, it's good, Fran. It's good that um, they're now trying to help out in every way they can because if we have equality in society, it's a lot healthier society. Because in fairness, we, we often have a go at the minister on, on this programme, but they, he yeah. is addressing the likes of, you know, IVF mm-hmm. and, and uh, yeah, the like which as well, which, 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 which is, is very lovely. good indeed. And, and as all your listeners will know, nobody wants to go for IVF. It's a very... It's wonderful to have it, but it's financially and economically and physically and emotionally exhausting. So for those that, that need it, it's wonderful to have it, um, you know, and, yeah. and that's why it is great that it's becoming affordable for people because up to that, the, the cost was prohibitive for a lot of people and little babies are miracles. So if people have tried naturally for a long time and with help and can get pregnant, well, then they shouldn't be denied the right. So it's wonderful to have that there for them. Well, that's, yeah. uh, that's uh, for sure. You say that some women would choose not to have a HRRT. Is, yeah. is that because of the side effects, Mary? Is that... Yeah, well, HRT has been shown to be very safe. I mean, there is that very, very slight risk of breast cancer yes. um, that we know about. But in actual fact, the risk of, bre- of breast cancer is higher with obesity and with also smoke. But you still have that very, very slight risk. So you'll have some women that say, look, at, you know, I'd rather try the natural route. And for a lot if they do the lifestyle changes and they take the sage and they take their supplements, they actually do very well, Fran. But you see, we have a lot of other medications for restless legs and for mm. lack of sleep that are very good. Um, and, and that helps and they get through it. But then you have others that won't and they'll absolutely need HRT. Um, so though, for those women, they're there. That you know They take those and they take them for usually a short duration of time, two to five years. Um, what we do know from the research is the longer you're on it, um, that the higher the incidence of breast cancer is related to the length of use. So while it's very, very small, we mm. tend to pay, put patients on it for two to five years. We definitely don't have, have an, them on it after 60 because after 60, HRT increases the risk of heart disease. Even though it's protective up to that, beyond 60, it actually increases the risk of heart disease and stroke. So we don't leave them on it. There. But at that stage, usually most symptoms have burned out. Now you have the odd poor unfortunate woman that, that unfortunately menopausal symptoms return in her 60s and 70s and we do see that and when they return they turn, return with a vengeance and you'll have some of your listeners listening in that, that will be suffering that unfortunately but it's rare but it does happen but um, you know as I mm. said for, for women though the, the main symptoms flushing, sweating HRD is very very good for but then for some women they, they're able to get by with just taking the natural and maybe taking um, medication for the peripheral nerve pain and the restless legs so some women do choice, make a choice. And as you said, yes, probably is. But also family history, if your mother or your sisters have had estrogen-dependent breast cancer, you shouldn't go on HRT. So those women will inevitably go down the natural route. And thankfully, we have medication there that naturally helps them sleep and gets rid of the peripheral nerve pain of the restless legs and also helps with the flushing that is associated with menopause. So I just think it's great that we're having this conversation, that it's normalised, because it is a very normal thing for every woman to go through starts usually um, perimenopause is the preceding five years where they notice the periods irregular 
and they notice they're getting a bit tired. Uh, that's for 45 to 50. And then 50 to 55 is usually when menopause happens. And that means the period has, has stopped, but then they get all the, the other symptoms, brain fog, lack of memory, exhaustion, um, you know, not sleeping right at night, feeling forgetful, as well as the flushing and sweating. And believe it or not, anxiety is a huge symptom that people don't talk enough about. So I would have women that would be, you know, running the mm. whole house and the whole their whole uh, business. Yeah. And um, then around menopause, they get incredibly anxious so much so that they just wouldn't be able to function and I've had spouses come in with their partners and say that this is not this is not the woman I know and once we treat them the difference is phenomenal and it's lovely to see and I'm sure I told you that before you know I saw a woman once that came in to me and said uh, Dr. Ann whatever you do you don't put me into an institution like my mother her mother was put into an institution around menopause yeah so sort of something we don't speak enough about there's been a lot of suffering of women over the years but I think it's important to, to, to call it out but to make sure that we'd never go back to that again and that we stay going you know it's, looking it's, after men and women health you know, health wise everyone should be looked at for equally. sure does and it no work pretty much eyes. immediately Mary um, oh, yes Yes. Yeah, it does. It's very quick. Yeah. It's very quick because it's all hormonal. So if you if you're lacking in estrogen and or you, you take estrogen and you're very anxious, yes, absolutely, it works very very quickly. And we have very you know we use the gel roots now and the absorbable through the skin mostly because mm. we believe them to be safer. And then if you have a womb, you take your micronized progesterone because that offsets any thickening of the lining that would happen in the womb. Um, and then if you don't have a womb, you just have to have estrogen only. And estrogen only has actually been shown to be very safe and, and very rare cause, rarely causes breast cancer, which is very good. But we would always say to women around this time, get your regular mammograms, get your regular bone density scans, because osteoporosis is a real risk when you reduce estrogen. So make sure you get that low bone x-ray done every three years. And heart disease then is another big one, friends. So not only are men at risk of heart disease from the 40s on, but women from their 50s on because of lower estrogen. So very important. They keep their cholesterol under five. They get their blood pressure checked because the arteries become stiffer with lower estrogen. So their blood pressure goes up. So they're more risk of stroke and heart disease and hardening of the arteries. So once it's all about prevention, keeping the cholesterol right, keeping the, the, the blood pressure right, and also around menopause, one of the big things that women face is the slowing of metabolism. They find that very tough because they put on weight. So their metabolism literally halves. And they really have to watch their diet. They have to cut back on the sweet things they got away with before. Now, I would be saying keep sweet things to moderation anyway. Mm. But you really, around this time, can only have two treats a week. And you don't bring it into the house. There's no point punishing yourself or tempting yourself. And that's the only way. So you have three meals a day. Try and eat from 7 in the morning till 7 in the evening. Try and stop at 7 in the evening if you can. And two healthy snacks. That that's, you know, well, I, I can vouch for that, either. Mary. If if the sweet <laughs> stuff is in the house, we we will all consume it for sure. My my understanding yeah, is well, uh, the transgender people taking hormone therapy is is that is that the same therapy, Mary? Mm. Is, is it the yes, very same? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but and yeah, absolutely. So, for for transgender, they would be on the exact same treatment. Now, they actually have a very low risk of breast cancer in transgender, but obviously, we always keep an eye on it. But yes, it would be the very, very same. Yeah, mm, interesting. Yeah, um, hormones are amazing. They're amazing little creatures. They really are. They they transform everything. Really, don't they? Just indeed. Yeah. And uh, any idea when this will be freely available? The HRT, Mary. Um, any? Well, any? it's 
it takes a while for yeah. it's only going through the Shannon. So I yeah. suppose if you look at I'd say if it was if it's going to be next year I would say at least because by the time that goes through the Shannon I would have thought it would be January, February. I would have thought because it's good to clear both houses. All right. So I would have thought, Mary, it's yeah. always a pleasure and thanks and, for and making I just time quickly for us. say, of course Fran, you can, just, I've my I've been nominated for the Irish Lifestyle Book Year Award. And if people wouldn't mind going on to, I, on my story on my Instagram, I have just if they would vote for me, I would love to. For the, my book is probably your hormones. Well, so if if I could, I'd really appreciate that. We, we'd all be delighted to vote for you, Mary, because that's a wonderful <laughs> book. And thank you so much for your time this Not morning. Not at all. Thank Take you. care. Love bye bye. You know, bye bye. That's uh, Dr. Mary Ryan, there, consultant, endocrinologist, and consultant uh, physician as well, based in Nina, working out of um, what was Barrington's. In, uh, in Limerick, of course. Uh, news and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Did you? Tip today. With Fran Curry, With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on. On 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat, and uh, welcome back to the second hour of Tip Today, 1800-938-007. We have uh, that prize for you, uh, Louise Morrissey. Tipperary's own Louise Morrissey celebrating 35 years in country music on Friday, November 3rd at the Talbot Hotel in Clonmel. Lots of uh, special guests there on the night, including my great friend Tony Brook, who will be MC on uh, the night. But uh, I know that Phil Begley will be there. Uh, Ray Lynham, Jerry Guthrie, Marty Daniels, Molly O'Connell and uh, the great country band called Matrimony will be supplying all of the uh, the backup there. Um it's, it's going to be a great gig if you're into country music. We have a pair of tickets to give away, and that's based on your interaction with us by text and WhatsApp. 083 If you put Louise Morrissey at the end of your contribution to us, we will pop you in the draw. It's as simple as that. Uh, one of our listeners telling me there's a five-year waiting list for women on a medical card for a bone density test. Are you serious? Five years of a waiting a list there. Um, somebody else on to us to say, what about HRT for men? Ireland is far behind on this and aren't men equal? We're definitely forgotten, says one of our listeners. I didn't even know much about HRT for for men, but um, uh, based on your, your text to me, I just had a look at it, but seemingly it's a helpful treatment for men with uh, very low levels of testosterone. Interesting that I didn't realise that uh, in the least. Um, let's move on to something else. Dunn's Doors has come under fire for leaving the ring out of its barn brack this year. Boreen Brack, also known as barn brack, it's, it, I don't even have to tell you, it's a type of a tea cake, I suppose, always baked in the lead up to uh, Halloween. And our historian Mary Alice joins me now. Mary Alice, good morning to you. Good. Good morning, Fran. Uh, I didn't realise, I hadn't heard that they were leaving out the ring. There you are. No, um, the cheek of them, Mary Alice. The cheek of them. Oh, my God, that defeats <laughs> the whole purpose, Fran. Doesn't you know? it, Justin? Would you, would you give us some background? Yeah. Barnbrack. Uh, what yeah, about the history bar, of it? Barnbrack or Boreen Brack, uh, mm. as you rightly um, said there. That is the Irish version of it. Um, uh, and again, shortened to Brack, I suppose, really. Mm. It's, it's a... It's a 
it's a cake, basically. Um, not as rich as a Christmas cake and much, um, you know, milder than that. Mm. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a cake that was traditionally made and consumed around um, Halloween. Mm. And, of course, Halloween was the Celtic festival, the end of summer and the beginning of winter. And, yes, made with tea. That's very important. And I suppose everybody made the brack themselves in their own house. And they then put in the ring and other little items I'm going to tell you about. Mm. But um, since it's been commercialised now, I mean, you know, there's, there's not the same fun in it at all. I mean, you see a barn brack now in September, you know, um, or any time. <laughs> any time of the year, yes. <laughs> any time of the year, you know. Whereas yeah. this, this, I suppose, you know, you have to think back. Um, there were big families. Um, everything was very local. Mm. The mother in the house would make the brack perhaps before the commercial element of it came in. And uh, I remember as, chil- as children, like, gosh, you'd be looking forward. Now, I didn't particularly like brack, but my God, I was happy to consume it if I could get my hands on the ring. Yeah. This was a huge thing, you know. And um, the ring signified, you know, it, it was kind of like fortune-telling, really. That's what it's considered to be, that the different items had a significance. So the best one, of course, needless to mention, was the ring, mm-hmm. which would come wrapped in a little bit of maybe greaseful paper or whatever. And um, if you got the ring, then the prediction was that you were going to get married in the next 12 months. And gosh, the excitement that I suppose even if you were 16 or 17 and, you know, female, obviously, or at that time. And uh, great excitement about that. And then, of course, if you've got the other thing, that wasn't good at all. What, what, like, what else was in there, Mary Alice? Yeah, apparently there there was, but I have no big recollection of that. You might get a little piece of a, uh, like a stick, mm. and that, that wasn't good. That meant or foretold that um, you might be in a lot of disputes and you might not Whoops. do so well. And there was a little bit of a rag as well, or a pee. Yes. Um, I think I kind of recollect the pee, and that was, none of those were good. They signified uh, perhaps that you wouldn't get married um, or that you would be poor. And then apparently, I don't recall, but a sixpence might have been in some of them. And of course, that indicated that you would be well off. And it is said that there was a medallion in some of them, which would indicate that you'd um, enter the religious life. Oh, I never never heard of that. Yeah, I never, no, I never saw that done, you know. But I know we'd be, you know, urging my mother to cut the brack and promising her that we all (laughs) want to, you know. Um, So I suppose the whole ritual around farm brack and around Halloween and the marking, and, and Halloween was very much an Irish tradition. Mm. It didn't. There was something kind of vaguely similar in Wales, but not nothing, nothing really across Europe. It was an Irish tradition. But the Americans you know? sort of hijacked it, and they, they kind of you know changed it around a bit and sent it back over here, which is where we're getting some of the modern day traditions, I suppose, Mary. Oh yes, absolutely. Around Halloween. Now I will say what I would say myself, trying trying to think positively about it. Um, I love that now small communities are making, um, 
you know, the, the, they're, they're decorating and making up their own, um, you know, like decorations like they have in Burncourt and mm. Wynn. And I see in the school in, in um, Thomastown near me here yes. that they have them outside the gate and, and you know, these figures and, mm. and all of that. That's very creative. Like, mm. that's great. I Yeah, I passed through New Wynn this morning and it looked fantastic. Absolutely yeah, I, I haven't passed through yet now. Yeah. I, 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 and I'd always go over to see them. And I love the ingenuity of people to think of different, maybe, themes and, you know, related to, we'll say, maybe um, mm. uh, modern things like maybe climate change or, you know, gosh, that's a bad one to be talking about right now. <laughs> but <laughs> you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I do indeed. You know, that, that there's kind of a modern twist on it and it, it relates to things. And that's good. And I love that people, uh, young people and, and not so young, are able to relate to this. Yes. But like you said, none of none of that happened, certainly, in my young young youth. For you know, sure, it yeah. It was very, mu- very much about the farm break. And then maybe we had, you know, we played snap apple, which was you dunked your head in a basin of water. And, and, and do, kids, do kids do that now at all, Mary Alice? I don't think so. No, I don't although think so all that I, much. I, yeah. I ind- I intend trying with my with my grandchildren um, this coming weekend because they're coming to stay with me. Yeah. And I do intend to see if I can introduce it to have a bit of fun with them, you know. But uh, I don't think so. I don't think that that really relates, you know. Yeah. Um, I suppose with the modernization of everything and everything is instant, you know, gratification. Uh, if I want it, I want it now. Yeah. So yeah. that didn't happen in in. in Times gone by, you know, there were big families. People didn't have very much. Um, the those events like Halloween, Christmas, New Year, Easter, they were all um, highlights, you know, rather than everyday things. Of and course, yes, and something to look not, forward to, I suppose, Mary. Alice, oh yeah, 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 and it's very important, I think, to remember as well. Halloween was very much was kind of a, a pagan festival, yes. and then it was Christianized, yeah. of course. And the church did that when the church came along. Rather than taking things from people and saying, no, 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 that's, that's wrong, they sort of put their own uh, twist on it mm. and that it became more modern, uh, more more. Yes, well, it, is it holy, holy you know? souls, is it, around that? Yeah, time, it? it's yeah. considered, you see, that, right, it's, Halloween marks the end of the summer, the beginning of winter, and it is considered that it's the time when the veil between um, life and death is at its thinnest. Yes. And so, especially people that have passed and died in the last year, that maybe maybe they passed for good, you know, mm. the, the kind of the spirit moves on. And um, there is a, a reverence to that, you know. That's not something that we would be afraid of. Yes. That is something that we would celebrate if we understand and if we have a belief in in the next life, you know, and that they're gone to a better place and that they're there for us, you know. I, I think that's... Um, that's very that interesting. That would be comforting. And you know this you know? thing, Mary Alice, of uh, giving uh, out sweets and nuts and stuff when, when, the, when the kids knock on the door. Is that an Americanism? I think that's an, Ameri- yeah, it, it's yeah. an Americanism. We think trick trick or treat, isn't that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. seem to have embraced that in a big, in a big way. Yeah. Know? But, but do you remember, was that part of Halloween tradition here years ago? 
No. No. I, I certainly don't. Yeah, I didn't think so that, either. You know. Yeah. No, no. That's that's very much a modern phenomenon as well. And and I don't mean to be knocking things now either, Fran, because, you know, new new traditions and new ways of doing things and thinking, they come too and they oh, bring course, their yes. own, yeah. you know, their own fun and children get, get a bit of fun out of going out and knocking another, you know. But I suppose um, because of the way modern life is so fast, it's so instant, we have... Um, we can access things so quickly, information and all of the rest of it, new traditions. Like, it, maybe maybe that part of it will pass again and everyone will be fed up of the trick-or-treating and just, you know, as it is, probably people go and they get shovel loads of sweets from neighbours and whatever. Yes. And yeah. do they even want to eat them, you know, I mean... Well, you know, pro- probably not, and they're full of sugar, and the kids will be up all night and all sorts of stuff <laughs> the, along with the yeah, if, if if memory serves me correctly. But, oh, uh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Do, do there, you enjoy it yourself, stuff. Mary Alice? Do you enjoy that time of year? Do you get a I kick do. out of it? Yeah. I, I do, and I think, you know, because like we almost go now from summer to Christmas, and I know we have Halloween, but it's kind of fast-forwarded, isn't it, you know? It's kind of like the decorations for Christmas just drives me to lally. Oh. I refuse to look at them. They're, they're, in, they're in the shops already, you know. I just want to slow it all down, Fran. Well, I want to yeah. savour. I want, that's the word. I want to savour the different traditions, you know. Well, it's a beautiful way to put it, and you're, you're dead right too. One of our listeners saying, Mary Alice, the brack was made a lot of the time in the past from the leftovers from making a Christmas cake, for example. Oh, right. So, so yes. was, was there yeah. leftovers involved in, in the tea cake? Um, not that, not per se that I know, although yeah. we'll say, I think the important ingredient would be that, uh, and the way of doing it is that you'd have cold tea and you'd let the fruit, now the fruit would be mixed fruit, so you could have raisins and sultanas, you know, you'd leave them to soak overnight oh. and you'd get a richer brack. You know? Yeah, that's um, why I don't like Brack very much because I just find it too bread like, whereas I love fruitcake, for example. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm not a lover of any of them personally. Yeah. <laughs> they give me massive indigestion. So I'm afraid they're I'm not a good um you know. And and of course the thing is, um, you know, I don't think any of us died from having any of these things in the Brack. And now, now we've gone mad on health and safety. Well, is My that is that God. what's what's behind the Don Storms decision? Is it? Um, yeah. uh, well, yes, I suppose they could be accused that somebody would swallow the the ring, or you know, it might be hygienic or whatever. Um, you know, we ran with on. Mad. I'm sure I, know. I mean, surely yeah. our you know listeners must some, some listeners must share my my feelings on this that. Um, don't do this. We can't oh, do yeah. that. Health, you know? health and safety and all of that kind of thing, yeah. I yeah, mean. and then it takes any sort of spontaneity and fun out of life. Doesn't it just, yeah. Because um, we're watching all the time. We're we're so, we're hyper-aware, aren't we, you know? Um, Martina's out there and she's disagreeing with us. She said, I grew up in the 60s and we always trick-or-treated. We would get apples and money, but we wouldn't have to sing for it and we would go around all the estates. It was a big thing. And then we would have a bonfire to finish off uh, the evening. So so there you go. Oh, yeah. wow. So, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah it's, that sounds more you know, like the ran than... than it does, it does, yeah. yeah. I, was just, I was just going to say that. Yeah. And 
Uh, yeah, and apparently the bonfire tradition kind of relates back to when um, animals were, dare I say, um, maybe killed for... Sacrificed, for, yes. Mm. Yeah, sacrificed. Yeah. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't like to use that word. Yeah, <laughs> sacrificed. And the bones were burnt. Wow. And that's, that's where the tradition of bonfire came from. Is it Isn't that indeed? amazing? I, I... Yeah. Never yeah. heard that before. Yeah, I, I only when I looked it up now that I came across that I was kind of surprised. Definitely, I never heard of that. We just assumed, and of course, lighting bonfires one time was very much a tradition. Um, again, in celebration of anything like Tipperary mm. uh, town in the hills, um, yes. if there was. Um, something to be celebrated or remembered, whatever. They grew up with this light bonfire, you know. So it was a great again, sense of, of occasion. And, uh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. The band would play and the bonfires would be lit and there would be great celebration and whatever yeah. it was that, that they were celebrating, you know. Now, you get it You get it still, I suppose, occasionally when, when say, the national team, the county team wins, if they win the... Yes. They might have a bonfire in Kerry. They haven't had one in Mayo in a long time. <laughs> Don't mention the <laughs> and war. Don't mention the Mary, war. Mary, or they'd have one in Galway, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Mary Ellis, always a pleasure. And happy Halloween to you. And thanks very much uh, for coming on with us this morning. Thank Lovely you. Lovely friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, okay. Janelle. It's uh, my good friend, Mary Ellis O'Connor, a local historian there, speaking to us firstly about uh, Barn Brack, but then branching out to talk about Halloween in general. We'll take a break back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecan, you can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Now we've spoken on the show many times about the frustration felt by business owners in the vicinity of Marketplace in Clonmel, which has effectively been abandoned and uh, left to deteriorate to such a state that it's now rife with antisocial behaviour. But there is one business uh, that is standing strong despite the difficulties. Uh, Rosie Donovan has been at the helm of the book market for nearly 20 years in Marketplace and she joins me now. Good morning to you, Rosie. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm very well indeed. Lovely to talk to you, Rosie. I, I know Thanks. you've seen a complete transformation from what was a very vibrant shopping district there to, to what it is now. What has it been like to be in the middle of that, Rosie? Well, it's been very difficult because uh, when when I first moved there in 2006, it was very vibrant. Super Queen was uh, a great business there, mm. attracted a lot of people. There were lots of shops around and so there were people. There were people passing the door every day. Uh, the two cafes were great and had lots of customers. Uh, you remember O'Toolers sure. was there originally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they did great business. And then, uh, you know, there was uh, Present Time, which was a lovely shop. Um, there was Jean Junction, mm-hmm. Ernie Mars, Better by Nature. You know, lots of lots of businesses and people, people came there all the time. So... Um, uh, Every business needs people passing the door. You know, they might mean to call to your shop, but they pass the door, they look in the window and think, oh, yeah, I'll go in there and have a look. 
So we'd get a lot of business that way as well. Um, and, and, of course, as all the business started closing, um, that kind of uh, footfall went down drastically. So, I mean, it's had a drastic effect on the business, no doubt. And how did you manage to survive, Rosie, when a lot of other people had to put up the shutters? Um, I think it's the customer service we give. Um, we've always given um, local authors um, quite a place in the shop. Um, uh-huh. I always support them. And... Um, we um, will order books for any customer. You know, if you can't find something somewhere, we'll find it for you and um, we'll get that for you. So we'll get anything you want. And there's a level of knowledge in the shop as well. You know, so people who actually read books and can recommend something, you know, it's, uh, it helps. Um, if you want a book for, you know, your grandchild who's seven, you might not have a clue what to get, but we can help, you know, that kind of thing. So, um I've always been very well supported by the local people. It's been fantastic, really, that they, the level of support we have had. And, of course, during COVID times, um, I kept going. Um, I did a click-and-collect service. Mm-hmm. So even though kids were in and out of school, they still needed books. So um, And I was able to supply them. You know, people could ring me. I was at the end of the phone. They could ring, and I would uh, make an arrangement to meet them and with, with whatever they needed and so on. So... Um, you know, we, we we keep going that way. We have a, a great level of support in the town. Of course, and it's in the the great tradition of the independent uh, bookshop. Uh, when my lads were of that age, I remember buying school books in there as well. I think I bought some second-hand books there as well, Rosie, did you? Yes, yeah. we've, we've, we've always, I've always been big on the recycling, really, and probably before, before it became so yeah. popular. But, um, yes, a lot of books would be in perfect condition and no reason why they shouldn't be passed on. And so it would save people a lot of money, you know, to get rid of the books you don't need and to get other books that you do need and, um, you know, get a, get some money for the old ones and get of the course. new ones at reduced prices. So, you know, we, we attracted a lot of customers from Kilkenny, Waterford, Dungarvan, um, Tipperary, you know, all over. So, but, you know, when those people came to Clonmel to get their school books... They would go and get a coffee or a lunch mm. and they would yeah. shop around the town. So, you know, it, it's always um, been something that, you know, that brings people to the town. And with your experience there, Rosie, where did it all go wrong for Marketplace? Well, it was really when uh, the sale went through um, nearly 10 years ago now, two, two thirteen December 2013, I think it was sold through NAMA, um, the 18 units were sold in an AMA auction um, for 920000 reportedly. And um, Remco, uh, that's the company that uh, supposedly bought them, um, they've just done nothing with the shop units since. And we keep uh, hearing that, you know, this pressure being put on to to do something about a marketplace, but it, it's not coming to fruition Absolutely not. No, yeah. I mean, uh, as I say, uh, the, the local councillors hate to see me coming because <laughs> I've 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 um, been hassling them for so many years, and they're all very nice people. I'm not saying anything, that, and, and everybody agrees something should be done about marketplace, mm. but nothing seems to get done about marketplace, and it's such a shame because it is uh, a lovely area of the town, pedestrianised, and the the buildings are quite new. 
Um, mm. In fact, uh, we uh, I was interviewed there recently for the Sunday Business Post, yes. and um, the uh, the reporter couldn't believe how new the buildings were. They're still in good condition. It's, it's, and how could it, something in the centre of town and in view of the town council, which, I mean, the council buildings are within... Mm. Stone's throw, yeah, and, he's, yeah. uh, and how, he couldn't believe how it was allowed to deteriorate so much. What about you, Rosie? I mean, 20 years down the line now, are you going to continue on? I'm not. I'm going to um, actually close the shop. I'm, I, I'm at retiring age now anyway, so I'm going to um, call it a day myself because I just... Um, it's very depressing, actually, looking out on, on the hoardings with the graffiti on them and so on. As I say, it's been been very well supported by the local people all through the years, but um, I I just can't carry on there any any longer. um, Oh, that's very, very disappointing. That really is disappointing. Yeah, I'm very disappointed myself because I I had such high hopes when I moved there, and it was a brilliant part of town then. And... um, yeah, there were buskers, you know, that we had yeah, um, yeah. festivals in there and um, uh, lots of uh, activity. It was wonderful. But uh, over the years, it's just gone down and um, and that's it. And when will you shut up shop, so to speak, Rosie? Uh, it will be in the next, uh, before the end of the year anyway. Oh. Um, yeah. But the the good news is my daughter-in-law has been working with me for the last year. Some people might have seen her in the shop. Um, she's going to open up another uh, a bookshop. And, in, um, in the town? In the town, right. yes. So it's going to it, it's going to kind of carry on, but um, without me, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm calling it a day. Well, a lot of people will be very, very disappointed about that, Rosa, because you've been a mine of information as well as everything else for, for <laughs> people out there. Um, were you always a bookie? I mean, were books always vital to you? I always loved books, yes. Mm. But I never thought of having a business um, of selling books. You know, that was something completely new to me. Um, but I remember as a child having getting my very first book given to me here, which was Little Women, <laughs> all those years ago. Yes. And I used to love that book. And then, you know, the library was always a big part of my life as well, which is, it, it has continued to be because I have great relations with the library, which is only around the corner from yes. the shop. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they come into me and I, I, you know, I've always handed books into them and so on. So, you know, the library is, is a great facility anyway. Well, Rosie, we're all very disappointed to, to know that you're, you're closing down the book market because it's been a vital part of the town for, for, for book lovers, that's uh, for sure. I'd love to talk to you at, at length at some point or other, Rosie, maybe closer to the time that you're closing your, your front door, if that would be okay. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd love, love to okay. do that because there's lots more I'd love to talk to you about. Rosie, we wish you well. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, okay. Thank you very much, man. Thank nice you. talking Thank to you. you. Bye-bye, Gina. It's Bye. Rosie Donovan there of the book market in Clanmellan Marketplace there. And as I say, great disappointment, I'm sure, among book lovers in the town who would have found that as a, a haven uh, and a, a place to browse and all of that. We'll take a break. Back in a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie When you choose... 
Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. And you're very welcome back to Tip Today. It's time now for Global Politics and glad to be joined as usual by Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. Good to see you today. Sure, we have to talk about it, I suppose, Israel and uh, Palestine again. And you described yourself as a spiralling uh, situation with no end in sight. It's all of that, isn't I it? I think at this stage it yeah. is. I mean, I'm updating the feed on my phone and looking at how many attacks, how many blasts there have been uh, overnight in the past few days. The situation is seriously escalating now. We're getting to a real serious point and we're starting to see the Israeli military campaign take shape. They've resisted a ground force or a ground force invasion thus far, probably uh, influenced by America by Joe Biden's visit last week. It does look like they will go in on the ground mm. at some stage over the next while. Are, are the hostages playing a part in that as well? I think they would have to be. Yeah. I mean, we had two US hostages released, obviously, the other day. That was yes. great news for them. But there are over 150 still in captivity inside in Gaza. And I think they are unequivocally playing a role. They are deterring the Israelis from going in. They're obviously, Hamas will use the hostages to extract concessions from, from Israel, from the West. Uh, but it remains to be seen how we're actually going to get them out. I mean, it's a real difficult one. It's a real complex situation for Netanyahu in particular here. He has to be seen to go in hard, but at the same time, if he goes in too hard, he jeopardises those hostages. It's really, really dangerous. What about world leaders and showing a solidarity with them? I mean, we've certainly seen examples of that, haven't we? Yeah, well, we had a flurry of visits last week from US President Joe Biden to Rishi Sunak. Emmanuel Macron is there today with the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Uh, they're all getting they're all getting over to Israel. We had, of course, the visit controversial visit by Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European yes. Commission, in which she expressed, I suppose, unequivocal support for Israel without condemning uh, some of their actions and telling them to abide by by war, humanitarian law, things like that. And that was obviously. Uh, an embarrassment, I think, for the EU from an EU perspective. But I do think the West is urging caution. I do think the West is uneasy when it looks at the situation now. When it looks at the Israeli bombardment of the Gaza, the Gaza Strip in general, it looks at the amount of civilians being killed. Yes. You know, four, I mean, four and a half thousand, I think, is four and a half thousand so far. Over one point four million Palestinians displaced as a result of this conflict. And of course, the other side to this, the other real dangerous side, is that it spreads. Yes. Uh, so we, that, that is the big fear here. Yeah. Will, will you explain that to us, how that could happen? So there is a danger that this could escalate into a regional conflict. What does that mean? It means that uh, Hezbollah, which is a, an Iranian-backed militant group in southern Lebanon, might get involved. They have been aligned with Hamas uh, in the past. They're far more forceful, far more powerful than Hamas, have far more military assets at their disposal. There is a danger there. Uh, that they will intervene in this conflict if, uh, and I think they've put a condition out, if there is a ground invasion. So if Israel go in on the ground, and it looks increasingly like they will at some stage in the the medium term, uh, Hezbollah may get involved. You then have Iranian-backed militias in the region. I think Iran is Iran is eager to involve itself in this conflict. It sees it sees how it can stir up instability uh, in the Middle East and obviously it trades in uh, it trades in its proxy forces using them to 
to engender instability across the region. So there is a real danger here that this could spread beyond the Gaza Strip. And that would have Israel fighting a war on on two different fronts then, wouldn't it? On multiple fronts. Now, the Israeli military is powerful. It must be said it's probably probably the third most powerful military in the world behind the US and and Russia. It has, you know, it is very well trained. It is support from the Americans, huge financial support. Joe Biden has pledged now. He made an address to the nation last week uh, pledging further support to Israel. So the the military is well equipped, but how well equipped it would be to fight a war on several different fronts remains to be seen. I mean, it's a far different operation to what's happening now in Gaza. Because let's face it, Israel can overrun Gaza. It has the military power. Uh, and the assets at its disposal to completely pulverise the place. We've seen the the rocket attacks. If it goes in on the ground, it may be able to root out Hamas and put an end to Hamas once and for all. But if this spreads beyond beyond Gaza Strip, then it becomes a different conflict entirely. And this is in light as well of um, uh, Netanyahu uh, getting involved with regional Arab leaders as well and sort of coming to economic um, uh, decisions with them as well. And uh, where is that now at this point? Yeah, it seems like a regression for the Middle East in general because prior to this, Israel had had kind of started to ally with some 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 of the Gulf states, the likes of Qatar, uh, the United Arab Emirates, even Saudi Arabia. Yes. It had struck a struck a deal with with them uh, over trade and economic ties, and it looked like they were building a kind of an economic network in the Middle East that countries were integrating, coming together that little bit more. That has all I would I would imagine been shattered by recent developments. Uh, it has provoked, you know, further conflict. It's cast the Middle East back into conflict, back into the cauldron of conflict that has engulfed it for so long. And we see these economic alliances uh, and and other issues uh, basically switch to one side. The war takes precedence. You know, Israel have convened a war cabinet. Uh, They've brought together political forces from across the political spectrum. It's a unity unity government. It's a unity government and there was anything but unity prior to this war occurring. why, Why is he not paying a price for that catastrophic failure of intelligence that allowed Hamas to attack in the way they did. Why, yeah. why is that not? i got to say I'm surprised. I'm surprised the backlash hasn't been more severe because it was a catastrophic intelligence failure uh, on behalf of the Israeli intelligence services. It was astonishing that they had no word or no, uh, no indication that this attack was going to occur. Uh, so the thing about Netanyahu, I think he's... He's politically versatile. He plays he plays his cards very well. I think there has been a show of national solidarity since the attack, which happens in the face of terrorist attacks. We saw it happen in the United States post 9/11, and maybe a little bit more recently, France, the Bataclan attacks. There was kind of there is a, a a coming together of national solidarity, national unity. People get behind one another. I would imagine the time for for analysing this and analysing the reasons why it occurred has not yet come. But Netanyahu may face consequences. There is no doubt about it. Uh, He has to take some of the book. He has to take some of the responsibility for it. There's still some investigation going on into the attack on the hospital. Um, Will the result of that, will there be a result on that uh, that's definitive? And if so, will that influence Western thinking? I, I think it very well might. I think, I mean, first of all, you have to condemn 
condemn it in the strongest terms. Whoever sent the missile, the indications are that it was a Palestinian militant group called Islamic Jihad who fired the missile and uh, it obviously ran off course. It failed and it hit the hospital. That is the theory. Uh, certainly, well, the, there's other theories. There, is o- there are other theories as well. As well. Yeah, that is the yeah. theory that Israel are proposing yeah. or putting forward. There are other theories as well. And if it was that it was an intentional military strike on a hospital, then that opens up an entirely new dimension to this conflict. That, I think, would make Western leaders very, very uneasy. Uh, you know, we had Joe Biden there visiting the last week. I think that would make them extremely yes. uncomfortable. And if they're if it ends up that there will be boots on the ground, so to speak, and if there is a, a ground invasion there as well, I believe there's there's a whole network of tunnels and stuff under Gaza City where Hamas could hang out and uh, hold out and uh, with guerrilla warfare. I mean, it, it's amazing. It could be very long term. Yeah, this, it's it? like the catacombs in Rome. Uh, if you've is ever it? been yeah. to them. Uh, apparently, well, I, I, for anything I've seen now, I haven't been to Gaza, but I mean, I've been looking at the analysis over the past few days and these are extensive networks of tunnels built specifically to endure uh, brutal shelling, to, to be able to withstand the power of the Israeli military, the power of the Israeli Air Force. Hamas are operating out of these bunkers underneath the ground. Uh, they're planning their operations from there. And they're obviously holding the hostages somewhere in there. So it's a really, it's a really difficult situation. And I think it will take, it will take a ground invasion to extract those Hamas warriors from those tunnels. That is why mm. Israel is so eager. But this may take months. And, and huge loss of life. And yeah. huge loss yeah. of life. This is yeah. the thing all the time. We, we talk about military strategy and, you know, and I'm interested in it. I, I, I read up a lot on it. But at the same time, you have to be wary that there is a civilian casualty, a civilian death toll here. And it really is shocking. It's, it's a horrible situation on both sides. Isn't it just indeed? Now, we ask you to have a look at historic figures for us. I can't believe we didn't have a look at yeah. Jack Kennedy. How we but, forgot but we, him, we, I don't know. We didn't. We didn't. We yeah. didn't. We didn't. Somehow we, we, he had slipped our minds and he certainly wasn't a president uh, who, who suffered from a lack of attention. Yeah. I mean, what can you say about him? JFK, uh, as an American, an American politician, served as the 35th president of the United States from 1961 until, obviously, his assassination, his famous assassination in 1963. But really rose up through the ranks came from a political dynasty. Uh, his father, obviously, Joe, was, a, was a, an, ex, an, an influential Irish-American yes. uh, who, 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 was, who landed himself in the middle, I think, of the US political establishment. Mm. And through the unions, I think. Through the unions. Through the yeah. unions. He managed yeah. to uh, eventually gain sway and gain, gain influence and became a very powerful figure and by all accounts, a very ambitious figure. And he had huge ambitions for his children, obviously. Uh, so he had a number of children. Uh, the, JFK, obviously, born into this this prominent Kennedy family in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, he graduated from Harvard University in 1940 before joining the U.S. Naval Reserve the following year. During World War II, and this is an important point of his life, he commanded a series of boats in the Pacific War, And his survival after the sinking of one of those boats uh, led to him being a military hero. Uh, He basically led his troop 
to safety from a from a catastrophic situation, and that upped his name. That that gave him prestige. He was obviously obviously a brave man and obviously an intelligent man, mm. and it kind of acted as the springboard, if you like, for his political career. Uh, it catapulted him into the political mainstream. And of course, the fact he looked fantastic um, and and television was in its infancy and all of that and particularly I suppose the famous debate with, with uh, Nixon. With, with Nixon yeah. and he capitalised on it <laughs> and, and for people who aren't familiar just that was one of the first televised debates in US political history. Yes. Uh, Kennedy was Kennedy captured the imagination of the American public. Nixon didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to look what the cameras were, were showing yeah. what was on him. He was sweating Kennedy was was this model, model like a Hollywood statesman, star, like a Hollywood yeah. statesman, smooth and silky, yeah. and well able to talk to talk to his audience, knew his audience, and that immediately, obviously, captured the imagination of American voters uh, and endeared him to the American public, and it gave him a real uh, a real strong footing on which to launch his campaign, and his campaign took off from there, and it was no surprise really that he won the presidency in 1961. Mm. He didn't have it all his own way while he was in the White House. During his brief tenure in office, I mean, the main thing about JFK when you think about it is his time in the White House is his foreign policy. And obviously uh, the attacks uh, or the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close the world came to complete nuclear destruction, complete nuclear warfare. Now, you could make the argument that he negotiated a way out of it, that he, uh, he, he managed to resolve that situation, but others will then tell you it was a problem of his own making, that he was responsible for conjuring up that situation in the first place. So there are two ways, really, of looking at it, uh, but it certainly was a, it was a tense moment in, in American, in geopolitical history, really, uh, but a moment which JFK managed to navigate in the end. He played the whole family card, of course, with the beautiful wife and uh, the perfect kids and all of that. But of course, you know, in recent decades, I suppose, we're aware that it wasn't all rosy behind the scenes. That's no, for sure. no, he was uh, um, a womanizer, if yeah. I'm allowed to say that, if I'm allowed to say that, use that term. Yeah. I mean, he was he had a devoted wife, Jackie Kennedy, and I would actually encourage anyone looking to learn more about JFK to watch Jackie, the film, because it allows for... JFK to be viewed through a different lens, through a different perspective from the lens of Jackie Kennedy, later Jackie Onassis. Yeah, uh, obviously a very. She, she had a difficult time with him. She had a difficult time yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and she was incredibly, she was incredibly resolute in terms of in terms of their marriage, in terms of her devotion to her children. A, a fascinating lady by all accounts. But he, as I say, was a bit of a womanizer. He was a bit of a player. Uh, he had romantic affairs going on, elopements behind the scenes. And and that surely made their relationship rocky, made it difficult and uh, made it difficult to yes. sustain. Of course, whenever anybody speaks about Jack Kennedy, Dallas has to be spoken yeah. of and uh, where he met his end. Yeah. The assassination. And it really was, you know, one of these... One of these watershed moments, I think, in in U.S. Politi- in world political history, really, it has gone down in the annals, in the record books. People remember where they were on that day and so forth. It was the first thing I'm thinking was it was a failure on behalf of the U.S. intelligence services. Mm-hmm. But of course, people will counter and say, put forward the many conspiracy ther- conspiracy theories surrounding his assassination. 
was the what was the US involved? Was US government involved to some degree? Uh, was it the Russians? Was Lead Harvey Oswald in with the Russians or in with the uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the leader mm. of the FBI? Uh, so there are all these different conspiracy theories. And you've read a lot around this. Have you made up your mind? I I can't. I yeah, mean, there yeah. are so many there are so many different threads and so many different angles from which yeah. you can look at it. I mean, I've seen numerous documentaries on it. Uh, and still I'm no closer to coming to a conclusion. I mean, I think Lee Harvey Oswald, obviously we know he was the assassin. That was that, That's one thing. He was then shot by Jack Ruby, uh, a, a, an American yeah. or a Texan, a Texan himself. Uh, it remains to be seen what, what role Oswald specifically played in this. Was he just acting out of his own out of his own playbook was was he acting on behalf of someone it's a very curious one and it's it's a question yeah. that I think will never ever be answered and, and look at the amount of books and movies and yeah. documentaries and stuff that's generated over the years in terms of what we should look out for just briefly Thomas what should we look yeah, out for yeah briefly the well week? the EU are making a renewed military effort they're, they're holding military exercises this week in the south of Spain now I'm scared about this uh, th- this is getting kind of scary yeah, it's getting it? serious now yeah. we're at the point where uh, a European military is becoming a, a viable prospect and uh, people can make up their minds as to whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. But certainly these this most recent uh, event, this is a military exercise. That, is this sabre-rattling on behalf of Europe? Is I it? think it kind of is. is I think it kind of is. And I think it's being, uh, it's being encouraged by the likes of French President Emmanuel Macron yeah. uh, and others, Ursula von der Leyen, maybe to a certain extent, uh, who are encouraging Europe to build up their military infrastructure that little bit more. So it's a really interesting dynamic there. Uh, But they are holding military exercises in the south of Spain. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. On on a more eastern front, we're looking... I spotted a story this week involving David Cameron. Yeah, this is a remarkable story. Yeah, Yeah. he's, uh, he's acting as the poster boy for... A multi-billion dollar plan to build a metropolis in the Indo-Pacific, the the vast Colombo port city. Uh, David Cameron is essentially the poster boy for this. He's essentially being wheeled out to promote the city, to promote this form of infrastructural development. It's part of... What's my, my geography is terrible. Is that Sri Lanka, is it? It is Sri Lanka. Oh, oh, Colombo okay. Port City, right. correct, is, is, is in Sri Lanka. But it's part of a broader Chinese project known as the Belt and Road Initiative, which we might speak about a yeah. little bit next week on the programme. Uh, it's a fascinating a fascinating one that Cameron has managed to get himself embroiled in this. Uh, we haven't seen very much of him since his kind of ignominious departure from the political scene prior to, or post-Brexit. Brexit, yeah. uh, so he's back in the fold. And finally, Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, obviously hailing deeper ties with North Korea. They're aligning ever more closely there. Uh, and that is, of course, a worrying alliance. The, the focus has been taken very much off the war in Ukraine by the Israel-Hamas conflict. But we must remember it's still ongoing. It's still a very precarious situation there. Is it not? I mean, you said this to us before, and I suppose we were accused a little bit of scaremong. It's a very dangerous world. It's a dangerous world. You know, we have conflicts on multiple fronts here. Uh, We have rogue actors. We have terrorist organisations. And 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 the possibility of escalation. And the possibility, and I think that is the the principal fear that many world leaders have, that certainly the Israel-Hamas conflict will spread further, that maybe the Ukraine-Russia conflict will, will extend beyond 
beyond the boundaries of Ukraine. Mm. And, you know, the more these things grow, the yes. more dangerous they become. And, so now, it's we, a, and now we have Europe uh, sabre rattling. As yeah, said, indeed. Uh, Tom, it's great to see you. Pleasure, Fran. Thanks, Thank thanks you. very much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on. On 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat, and uh, you're very welcome back to Tip Today. 083 311 We have those tickets uh, to give away. And uh, Louise Morris, he's celebrating 35 years. I can't believe that. 35 years in country music. She's doing so in great... Well, she's doing this around the country. But on Friday, November 3rd, uh, she's appearing at the Talbot Hotel in Clonmel with a whole host of country music stars. Phil Begley is there, Ray Lynham, Jerry Guthrie, Marty Daniels, Molly O'Connell. And uh, the wonderful Matrimony Band is supplying all of the accompaniment as well. And the great Tony Brook will be there as compare on the night. So we have a pair of tickets to give away. It's based on your interaction with us by text and WhatsApp. So if you're uh, getting involved with the programme, if you put uh, Louise Morrissey at the end of your contribution, we'll be aware then that you want to be involved in our competition. Now, uh, just uh, the last hour, I was speaking to Rosie Donovan. Uh, Rosie is the proprietor of the wonderful Book Market Bookshop and sadly she told us that she's closing up shop before the end of the year. A lot of people very, very disappointed indeed about that. Uh, but Seamus Fogarty was on to say that Rosie is a credit to her profession. Uh, he called into her just before COVID with a new book that he had written. He didn't get around to coming in with the book for a few months because of COVID and he thought it would be too late. But Rosie was so gracious and lovely and she's a big supporter of local writers and we're all very, very grateful to her indeed. Well, I suppose if there's any good news to be had from it all, she said that her daughter-in-law is opening another independent uh, bookshop somewhere somewhere in Clanmel, and we'll let you know about that uh, as soon as we find out more information. All right, then, it's time for Travel Tales with uh, Fergal, and Fergal O'Keefe is with me in studio to bring a little sunshine into our lives on this rather miserable day. How are you, Exactly. Fergal? If there's ever a day to talk about travel, <laughs> and, you know, I actually checked why or... It's, it's a travel website. That's the one I always use. I find it the most accurate. Yes. But I, I had a look. The area I'm doing is the lakes in Lombardy. So everyone know you know, around Lake Como, Lake Garda, Maggiore. And I just had a look there and it was like 15 degrees, 15 to 18. And I have a friend who was there last week. That's what actually got me to do the lakes. This week was I have a friend who was there last week and they were sending me photos and they were walking in the mountains around the lakes in their shorts and T-shirts. So it is an ideal one for this time of year and it'll probably get a little bit colder now going into November but even for October, September, October, November It'd be a lovely time of year to do it. So for people like me who want to be a little challenged with our geography, we're talking about northern Italy here, Exactly. Are we? So it's northern Italy. And I, I, the other reason I wanted to do this place is because... So it's, it's, it's near Milan, Verona, you know, um, Milan, 
Venice, Verona, those airports. So the beauty of this area, so th- there's seven lakes. So I mean, the lakes, everyone, like the famous ones are Lake Como, Lake Garda, Maggiore. Then, but there are other ones like Lugano, Orta, Idra, Inicio, much smaller ones. But the biggest one is Lake Garda. But the beauty of this place, and you know, I, again, out of curiosity, I looked at flights last week. I don't know what they are this week, but I'm sure they're pretty much the same. But like Corked Milan last week was sixteen ninety nine oh, each way. Stop. And are you serious? Exactly. Wow. So, du- so you know, or, or you've got Dublin to Venice was twenty one ninety nine. Dublin to Verona twenty four ninety nine. So, it's for nothing. And the beauty of, of this area actually is, is that even in the summer you'll get great deals because as I said there's like three, well Milan is three airports so there's probably like six, five or six airports mm. where you have choice so you can have a look at the different prices even in the height of summer I think you, you pretty much will always get a good deal and even flying into somewhere like Milan in the height of summer you can often get a good deal because it's more of a business city so right. you can often get that's, great That's amazing for you because I was put off travel to Italy because I almost thought it more expensive. Yeah, I mean that around the, around the lakes it probably is a little bit, yeah. you know it's a, a little bit expensive for hotels and food and things like that but again, if, if you look around I mean that's something I always say, that no matter where you're going, you can always get deals, you know, that um, there, there's different accommodation levels, the food levels I mean even like say around those lakes you can get pizzas for like four euros or you can go and get a Michelin star meal right. or whatever okay. so there's always that variety yes. but the beauty of this and Milan is say from Lake Garda it's only a half an hour drive away so it's very near so all the lakes are only between a half an hour to mm. an hour the furthest way I think is like an hour and a half so there's great variety and if you had a car it would be great to actually to get around and something you know I was looking you know you, know, you could imagine I'm always reading like travel articles and sure. I, during the summer two articles that caught my eye actually around this area was one was going around it was going around the lakes it, it was actually Lake Como but in a tuk-tuk so you know those little the little tuk-tuks so a tuk-tuk is like a little three-wheeler oh, yes, you, you yes. see them in Asia yeah, you, yeah. the Italians have their own version like it's a little those little tiny three-wheelers so I'm not too sure if this is the one but you can actually <laughs> go around the mountains there around the lakes in a little tuk-tuk it's near Milan the company that do it are called Large Minority and you can get, you know, if you want to do something for a bit of crack, but then if you really wanted to splash out, another one that caught my eye is a company called uh, UltimateDriveTours.com and what they do is if you're into driving so this area, these, these lakes are surrounded, the, the Dolomite Mountains and the Alps are around there and it's on the border with like Switzerland so for people are into driving, driving around those mountain roads is the ultimate. That's, that's wonderful. And that yeah. company, you can actually go from Verona, you can actually get like um, supercars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and you can hire them for a number of days and they do a special one in September where it, it, it joins up with Monza so you can do like driving around in your Ferrari and then go to Monza. It, you know, it, it's a big splash. Oh, I would love that so much. You know what I mean? But if yeah. someone wanted to and I kind of think a lot of people that go to this area is known for sort of honeymoons and things like that. People are some, you know, if you have a special birthday, if you really wanted to splash out. But the, again, the, the beauty of these lakes is the high end, I suppose, is Lake Como. And Lake Como is the famous one or it was made famous I mean it's always been famous like Shelley many years ago was talking about it and mm. Ernest Hemingway was talking about it but more recently is um, George Clooney he's a house on the lake in Lake Como and 
it, I saw a few articles actually again during the summer that he was selling it because, I don't know, like 20 million or something, but he was selling it because uh, he was sick of all the paparazzi. Because the villa is amazing, but it's right on the water. So there was boats literally outside the house, like, you know, they couldn't go for a swim oh, in their, God, their yeah. pool. But explain, I mean, when you speak about a lake, yeah. what are we talking about here? I mean, are there beaches on the lake? I mean, yeah, can you swim? And they're huge. Them? I mean, yeah. it's like, like Lake Garda is 142 square miles. Lake Como fits twice into that but it's so they're huge they're like little seas nearly yes. and the beauty what, what I love about I mean I love going to the sea and, and to beaches but also the mountains so you're surrounded by the mountains but they're huge lakes and there's loads of towns so you can literally work away around the lake into you know for, to go stay in different towns or different, yes. so you could actually not only go to different lakes but even if you just stay in one like Lake Garda Lake Garda is probably out of all of them is the cheapest one and that's you know, well known for families, and they actually have. They even have, um, you know, a huge water park on that on that lake, and they have campsites. So again, you know, if, if you were going at families, Lake Garda is probably the the one that is best known. But Lake Como. If you were going, say, as a couple or you want a romantic weekend, Lake Como is the one you get to see. And, you know, the, the joke is like every every little restaurant or bar in, in, in every town, Lake Como, there's a picture of, of George Clooney on the wall because <laughs> he's been there for a drink. Right, but yeah. he's so well known. But it, that is absolutely... That's the most expensive lake, but it's the most stunning as well from the point of view of the beautiful little lake. But then it goes up, the mountains up beside it. And these, you know, the pastel does colours, a bit like, you know, like Dingle do it as well, or, you know, Cove, those different colours, but these beautiful towns built into the hills. And on Lake Coma, there's great, you know, to get around, the, you know, you can drive around the lake and park and see in these little towns, but the thing that I would really recommend to people to do is, there's like public boats and only like two or three euros to get the boat to go from town to town. So, you know, the, the boat trip alone is amazing. Or if you really wanted to uh, you can actually get little boats yourself, like little speed boats, like kind of lower power. You don't need a license for it. And uh, you can go, you can hire them. I think it's something like 200 euros or 250 euros for the day to hire one of those. And you can be your own George Clooney, like sailing up in a little. <laughs> and, and if you really wanted to do a George Clooney on it in Lake Como, they have a great thing where you can get a seaplane. So you can go from like, you know, which... And I think it works out, it's something around 100 euros. But these seaplanes, they're like sea taxis. So you can take it one side of the lake and go up to the other side of the lake, land in the sea, have lunch in one of the villages and fly back and, you know, go through the mountains as well. So that, you know, I I would really recommend that for something. There's a company there that do it and they've been there for... um, over, I, I think, like around. And is that prohibitively expensive? Is that no, no? no. I, I mean, I, like a hundred euros would for for that would, would do it, you know. Oh, so wow. yeah, wow. so so those seaplanes are going all the time, and Lake Como actually is famous. You know, they, they say like during the summer. It's just non-stop seaplanes in and out with the with the celebs and the superstars coming in and out by seaplane, driving to Milan and uh, or, and then get their seaplane um, down into the lake. You know, there's no driving. So for for high season, you know, it, it can be expensive in in all those lakes. I, you know, I would say so. That's why I would really recommend going in off season. And some of the lesser known lakes. Then. Yeah. Just just talk to us about some of those. And the one that I'd really recommend is Lake Maggiore. Yeah. Actually, on my own Travel Tales with Fergal podcast, I had a person called Holly Rubenstein, one of my first guests. She has a, a podcast in the UK, sort of called the Travel Diaries, which is the biggest uh, travel podcast in the UK. 
and her favourite place was Lake Maggiore and she absolutely loved it. What she loved about it is Lake Maggiore is actually on the border with Switzerland. So you're actually, you can stay in Switzerland or you can stay in uh, Italy or you can go from one to the other just by getting a little boat. You have your lunch in Switzerland and come back. <laughs> and on that lake, there's loads of little, um, there's loads of little islands with, with these amazing old villas on them with the gardens are now. So if you're into gardening, I know my auntie went to the lakes uh, a couple of years ago on a gardening trip and her favourite was Lake Maggiore and she was saying particularly on the islands, they're kind of like their own microclimates. So the gardens there, if you're into that gardening, uh, Travel Depot, I think, or the company, an Irish company do it, but the gardens are amazing. And they're all over... um, all over, like all the lakes, you know, the, these villas that open up their gardens to the public, you know, so it, it, it's, it's, it's definitely a place for, is, for yeah. splashing out. And there are two, my sister was there a while ago and she actually mentioned uh, Lake Isio. That was her favourite. So mm. that's probably the smallest one, but it is, you know, it's probably, you get great value in that lake, actually from point of view of accommodation and maybe feels a little bit more, less touristy than the other ones. Because like, say, Como, Lake Garda, particularly Como, you know, are the big hotels, you know, the more the five-star mm, hotels. Mm. But if you wanted to get that old style the way it used to be, Lake Isio is one, or Lake Orta yes. as well. And what are the little pubs, little restaurants? Little, yeah, little and that, caverns, so the, yeah. There, there isn't like a, a pub... You know that's but there is but the restaurants kind of nearly turn into um, they're they're so lively themselves like every place and actually that area is famous for uh, risotto so all around the area in the hills you actually see the paddy fields that have been there for you know so that area for that that that's kind of what they're famous for the risotto and you know the same as everywhere in Italy the food and the wine is just amazing and I was saying is it a wine uh, producing area yeah there's there's wine there. Um, yeah. But it, it's probably not you know one of the most famous ones in, yes. in in Italy. But but the food is just unbelievable. Like you know, same as as well as everybody. And and you know, if somebody's lazy like me, I, I I love to head off, but know exactly what I'm doing and have it set up for me, so to speak. You, I guess you can get that. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's loads and. Um, you know, so either you can pre-book it beforehand and there's great tours. And actually a great one is there's group, you know, if you look it up now, even if you Google like walking tours, there's great groups now that you can do that. Like, so there's walking tours where you stay in, in different areas in the lakes and they do walks then in the mountains around the lakes and go down into the village. So there's loads of those. And there's loads of groups that'll bring you to one to the other. I mean, I always go my, do it myself and get a car at the airport and, um, you know, uh, move from lake to lake. But a lot of people just like you should say, like to, yeah. to have it done. But there's loads, like it, it's so well established there. But I think the peak time is probably October, uh, September, that time of year, you know. But also even, I was actually talking to someone last week about that, a, a travel person about, um, you know, the trends in, in travel. And they were saying that, uh, that they're saying that the big trends, this is a UK company, is people looking to go to places like um, Lombardy, the mountains around that area during summer. Because remember I told you that, like when we were, when I was in Turkey this year, the heat was unbelievable. And while I was in Turkey, I was looking at mountain areas to check the weather. So I, I think that's actually something that's going to happen over the next few years, 
that um, people are going to be looking for more mountainous regions with big lakes rather than the sea purely on the weather. That's driven by climate change. Yeah, is, isn't exactly. It? Isn't that very interesting indeed? Uh, you wanted to mention something before before we head off? Yeah, I, I do some work with MS Ireland and their biggest fundraiser is actually starting next week. So it's, for, it's called the MS Readathon. It's actually been going for 36 years. So a lot of people will know what their kids do it in the schools. So all over the country, Roald Dahl started it 36 years ago. So it's the big I was one of the oldest fundraisers in Ireland, but the last few years also the fundraiser now is 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 you know all ages. I'm going to say older people, but all ages, mm. so adults can do it as well. So again, during during the um, pandemic, it, it always used to be like sponsorship cards in schools, and yes. then it went online, and then it went adults can can do it as well. So it's a great thing to get back into reading because a lot of people have got out of the habit. So the idea is for the month of November, msreadathon.ie is the website, and you basically get sponsorship for doing reading, and it's a brilliant one for kids because it's often their first introduction. It's cool. Great to idea. reading books idea, yeah. and it's throughout the month as I said November but uh, msreadathon.ie is the website and uh, yeah it's an amazing thing you know like um, it's been going so long now and, and it's their biggest fundraiser so it's it's crucial for MS Ireland mm-hmm. uh, you know So if uh, people can get involved in that do so please uh, podcasting and all of that anything we should know about? Yeah well I'm, I'm in starting now my next um, season I'm in the middle of recording that now so that'll be after Christmas by the time that comes out so right. yeah Almost good to see you and thanks for bringing a little sunshine into such a miserable day anyway Thanks very much indeed, Fergal. We'll take a break back with more. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Yeah, Maureen was on to us from Karen. She says, uh, really enjoying the show, Fran, but what a shame to hear about the closure of Rosie's Bookshop in Atlanta. Lovely shop uh, to browse through. Well, that's uh, for sure... Uh, Maraid, we were very disappointed to hear that uh, this morning and as I say uh, there's so much more I could uh, have spoken to Rosie about this morning and we will certainly do so um, before she closes up shop for sure The Conspiracy Files on Tip Today and the conspiracy person herself, Ali, is with me. Good morning. Morning, Fran. Good to see you today. You um, you're going to talk to us about past lives, for God's past sake. Past lives, yeah. It's yeah. an interesting one. It's a very popular one as well because humans have pondered the idea of reincarnation for generations. And, of course, it's a main belief in a number of religions as well. It's a mainstream yeah. teaching in Hinduism, Sikhism and Buddhism. But many Western cultures have also bought into the idea of reincarnation. Um, but done so through a kind of a more popular kind of vein because there are countless stories of parents online who describe how their children began speaking of past lives at a very young age. Now, studies on this, and there have been many studies, many scientific studies done on this, show that children who speak of past lives will do so between the ages of two and five. And then any memories that they have or claim to have had will fade away then after the age of five. But there is a very small number of people who claim to carry these memories throughout their lives. Now, of course, when you talk of past life memories, 
it's quite contentious and arguments can be made for and against. I mean, many people will say that children are very prone to, you know, imagination, mm-hmm. that anything they see on television or read about in books, that that's where they're getting these memories from. But the stories that I'm bringing you today, the case studies I'm bringing you, um, you can't explain away really by just having seen something or read something. I mean, there is irreputable evidence there to show that they know exactly what they're talking about and they are who they say they are. Uh, Jenny Cockell is an interesting story. This is one that's very close to home because a lot of these studies, a lot of these stories come from India. And many would argue, and experts in the field will say that this is because they're very open to the idea of reincarnation as part of their religious belief. So the talk, children wouldn't be afraid to tell you about memories of past lives, whereas here it might be something that would be very quickly dismissed. Jenny Cockell was a woman who was born in 1953 in Hertfordshire in the UK. She's an English podiatrist who in the mid-90s, you might remember her because she was all over the place in the mid-90s talking about her claims of reincarnation. She had very clear memories of being a woman called Mary who lived in Ireland and these memories stayed with her for her whole life. Her story was very compelling. Now here's an interview with Mary from, not Mary, Jenny or Mary from the early 90s. For as long as I can remember, I've had dreams of being Mary in Ireland and dying while the children were still young, not grown, in the 1930s. Terrible dreams of being alone in a room in pain, not at home, and knowing that there's nothing I could do to ensure the safety of the children's futures. As soon as she could pick up a pencil, Jenny began drawing maps of the village she saw in her mind, the main roads, the station and her cottage. And when she got a school atlas, she could even locate where it was. And after several attempts, just shutting my eyes and allowing myself to be drawn to a place that might feel familiar, I found that Malahide was named just north of Dublin. For years, Jenny kept these strange visions of Ireland to herself, until at last she could hold back no longer. She had to find out if the memories meant anything. She began at her local bookshop, ordering a map of the Malahide area to confirm her childhood drawings. The maps matched. For Jenny, a first glimmer of proof. Looks the same. Yes. Excellent. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Now she needed more and tried hypnosis to plumb her deeper memories. And just drift away. Just drift off into deep, deep relaxation. One, two, It sharpened up a great deal of the detail. There's one of the churches I saw the outside fairly clearly, clearly enough to make a little drawing afterwards of it. And so from that past life regression, then she got a name. That name was Mary Sutton. And then with the work of of local historians, she was able to track down Mary Sutton and her children, all of whom were still living at this stage. She went to meet one of them by the name of Sonny. And what's very interesting is how the children's reaction to her was. I mean, they fully believe that Jenny is who she says she is but the way that they see it is quite interesting and here are the thoughts of the children when they met Jenny Powell Priest only lives across from us Father McCarthy and I said Father I want the truth though I said do you believe in reincarnation he said that is all I can answer Chrissy that is their dual mother is calling from heaven Mm. and it's coming through you Mm. Jenny's dreams Mm. are mommy's thoughts 
basically my my opinion is that mum wanted us all together again and jenny was the lucky yep. one that the chosen yeah. that uh, she chose and put her soul into jenny yeah that's the way i look at it she is back again i i believe that my mother isn't not passed on she hasn't passed over as we say the wounds of the years of separation the wounds of not knowing where my brothers and sisters were. Those wounds, Jenny is healed now. Because now I know where they are. I know they're alive and well. Isn't that fascinating? Jenny's yeah. dreams are mummy's uh, thoughts. So, yeah, it's... so they don't believe that she was reincarnated as such, but they do believe that their mother from the grave sent messages to Jenny in order to reunify the family because the family were all separated after Mary Sutton died. They were all sent out to foster homes. Many of them didn't meet until Jenny Cockell arrived on the scene. So they believe firmly that it was their mother speaking through Jenny, not necessarily reincarnated, but they do believe her. That she was like a medium or something. Exactly. Was that, was that yeah. 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 Who who else have you got, Ali? Cameron McCauley is an interesting one, and he was in the news lately because there was um, a documentary made about him, and it's called "The Boy Who Lived Before." He's a young boy from Glasgow, living with his single mom and older brother, but has very vivid memories of a life before this one. That life was on a very remote Scottish island called Barra. Now he remembered his Barra mother and dad, his brothers and sisters. He had a black and white dog. He remembered that he grew up on a beach uh, near a house where planes would land. That was very specific for him, that planes would land on this beach. And he was so insistent on it and he longed for it terribly. And you can see that in the documentary. He'd wake up at night crying to go back home. But his mom, an amazing woman, you know, I think a lot of parents would maybe fob this off as imagination or dreams. She didn't and she believed him and she followed her through. She sought help from psychologists, from historians, from everything. They were able to track down this house in Barra that they believed he lived in before and brought him to visit it. He was four years of age when they brought him there. And here's some audio of that visit. Norma McCauley is a single mum who lives in Glasgow with her two young sons. I've got two boys. Lovely boys, not even if I say so myself. I've got Martin, who's six, and I've got Cameron, who's five. Since Cameron first started to talk, he has described life as a child on Barra, a remote island in Scotland's Outer Hebrides. I lived in the White House with my mum and dad and my three brothers and sisters. From the age of two, Cameron has been telling his family the same story. As he's grown older, the story hasn't changed. It's just become more detailed. Norma could not understand how Cameron knew about Barra, let alone have such clear memories of life on the island. At first I just thought, oh, he's making things up. And then I was thinking, how does he know the name Barra? Why, why is it bad where none of us have been or have any connection with? Barra lies off the western coast of Scotland, 220 miles from Glasgow. It can only be reached by a lengthy sea journey or an hour-long flight. It's a tiny, distant outpost of the British Isles and is home to just over a thousand people. My favourite place in Barra was the beach and I took my dog with me and I play with him and my brothers and sisters to play. 
He used to say, I'm a bad boy, I'm a bad boy. <laughs> the plane was to land on the beach. He said there's like a small beach. He says in like small planes land and they land on the beach. It better is a loads of place to run around, but here is not a lot because the houses are near each other. And there's a scene in that documentary yeah. where when they go to the house and he's he's very struck by it and he doesn't speak a lot but he asked that the fire be lit at the house in Barra because that's what they did every evening so they lit the fire and they all sat around and he like he was only a four-year-old boy at the time and his mother said to him are you happy you came to Barra and he just nodded saying yes and she said does it make you sad and he said yes like nodded and then she said do you miss your Barra mummy and he looked at her with the big eyes and his chin started to go and he said yeah and I just oh it broke my heart the poor like he had a physical reaction to where he was and he was absolutely sure that this was where he lived Wouldn't before. Wouldn't you feel for the poor mother though this is to, the thing. to deal with that? And she was so know? open to it and yeah. she would say to him that was your life then and I'm your mammy in this life and I love you just as much as your barren mammy did and it was like she handled it so well so well but that documentary is available online it's called The Boy Who Lived Before there's another I mean this Mm. next case is incredible this is the case of James Leninger he's an American child and similarly as well as a young child would speak about memories he had of being a pilot and his name at that time was also James he claimed now the parents just thought it was something that he was watching until they took him to an air show and he was able to identify all the different parts of the planes all the different planes and what they would have been used for he would have nightmares every night that he was trapped in a plane. He even had G.I. Joe dolls that he gave very specific names to, first and last names to. And the parents didn't understand that. He never underwent any type of hypnosis. But how they were able to, I suppose, prove what James was saying is incredible. Listen to this audio. I thought Bruce and I were just going to faint. They questioned what kind of plane? Corsair. Why did your airplane crash? My plane was shot down. Who, who shot your plane? He looked at me like I was a, a village idiot. He said... The Japanese! I kept thinking, where is he getting this? I was a stay-at-home mom, so I know that there wasn't anything that he was being exposed to. Not exposed to in this life, but perhaps, just maybe, somebody else was. Decades earlier, James Houston grew up with the same insatiable fascination with airplanes. He became a naval fighter pilot and fought in World War II. March 3rd, 1945, during a mission near Iwo Jima, he took a direct hit. At age 21, was declared missing and presumed dead. Where did he take off from a boat? Do you remember the name of your boat? He said Natoma. Found uh, several thousand hits on the word Natoma. The USS Natoma Bay launched into battle, headed for Iwo Jima in the fight for Lady Golf. It's the biggest naval battle in the history of the world. Leo Pyatt served on the ship. From his home in Ohio, he organizes the Natoma Bay reunions. That's how Bruce found him. I wanted to disprove it. He asked uh, a few questions about, uh, did I know some of the people? Oh, yeah, I remember those people. And uh, so he... He got uh, very uh, quiet. It was all real. The people and places James described actually existed. And remember those G.I. Joe dolls that James named? Turns out, three men with the same names, first and last, served on the Natoma and were killed in action. James said, 
They greeted him in heaven after his crash. I'd always asked him, do you remember what your name was? And he always said James. But his name is James. Yes, there was a Jim Houston, or rather large shell, just hit him in the, the engine and it burst into flames and, and went down. They showed Leo the drawings. He was uh, right on the nose. I'm sure, in my mind, that he was there. Leo invited James, now three, to the reunion. James recognized several pilots, even called them by name. You're Bob Greenwald. <laughs> I'm serious. And he'd never met Bob Greenwald. No, he'd never met him before. And someone else was invited. James Houston's sister, Anne. And he goes, uh, it's not Anne, it's Annie. She wasn't my oldest sister. I had an older sister than that. And I said, you did? Who was that? And he goes, Ruth. I mean, Ruth. Annie is what they called me when I was little. Knowing my name and my sister's name, the things that my brother did when he was a kid, and it's too amazing to describe how he would feel that way, but he does. He considers me his sister. But does she consider James her brother? I think it's probably a reincarnation of my brother. Isn't that incredible? That's an unbelievable story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And, and the names that he gave to the dolls proved to be yeah. actual people. They were um, colleagues or comrades that he had in the army as James Houston. Exact names. I mean, there was no mistake made at all. All right, then. What do you make of all of this? I mean, look, obviously there's a lot of scepticism around this and it can be dismissed. But yeah. when you look at the case of James Leninger, I mean, that's irrefutable, really. You know, he knew names, he knew ship names, he that knew he plane possibly names, have known. not at three years of age. Yeah. And even the parents would talk about he would draw pictures, but they were kind of moving pictures with red marks everywhere to kind of signify where he was going and where he came down. So he was very precise in his detail. And do we know where psychologists and psychiatrists sit on this? I mean, is there a... Depending on what side they're on, I mean, the ones that are sceptical will always say that this is, you know, some kind of imaging or some kind of influence from stories that they've heard or from something they've watched on television or films or books that they're reading. You can't explain all of that away. I mean, there are some that will say if, if when they are on the side of reincarnation, if a death is traumatic enough or in some way maybe is unresolved from that life that will continue into the next life in order for them to find that closure and that resolution. Like maybe, an energy that continues exactly. on. Yeah. And maybe that's the case with James Leninger because his death was so traumatic that he had to find former colleagues in order to find peace and closure from that death in order to move on in this life. Um, so look, I mean, it depends on what you believe in yourself. Mm. You, I you've had some uh, past life regression. I did. I've, you see, and it's not that I believe it as such, but I find it fascinating. Yeah. So I, I went to get the past life regression done. You've had it done as well. I've had you? it done, yeah. Mine was very interesting. What was yours like? Um, I ended up, I was training to be a hypnotist at the time and it was sort of part of the, the training and I, I was in a class. I wasn't very good at being hypnotised. So, right. So I took this as a kind of, you know, a grand. Um, but I did have a rather unique experience. It was very brief, but I was this guy in tattered clothing. No change there. Um, it, it seemed to be like the American Civil War. And there was one of these American Civil War bands, you know, with fife and drums yeah. sort of coming around a corner. But it was like crystal clear in technicolor to me. And the only anomaly in it was when I looked down, as I say, I was in very tattered clothing, but I had a very fancy ring on my finger. So I'm not sure what... And then it all sort of disappeared. But it wasn't a dream. 
you know. Yeah. Were you not tempted to go back and see what the ring was about? No? I'd, I'd love to have. Uh, I looked it up afterwards to see was could I find the image of the ring. And, do you remember um, what it looked like? I do. Sorry, it was very dark, almost black, with a sort of a gold inlay thing. Wow. But I couldn't find anything that even was similar to yeah. it along the way. But I, I don't know, maybe I was a thief and I stole this thing. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it was fascinating. What about yours? Mine was different in that I, I think I remember I went through four lives and she she said I was quite unique in the fact I was jumping from life to life. Normally people would stay in one and um, tell it in great detail. I remember the first one. Similarly, I was in the Civil War. I was married to the man I'm married to in this life, but I actually wasn't with him at the time. So that was kind of odd. But he died in war and I saw him die. And then I killed myself by throwing oil, paraffin oil on myself and lighting myself on fire. What? So I remember that. That wasn't pleasant. Then in the next life, I that was... That has been the greatest understatement <laughs> of all. That was rather unpleasant, yes. Then I was been. in Haiti and I was an old woman and I drowned in the sea. But I was like in my 80s when I drowned. That was an accident. I can't remember the fourth one, but another one was an interesting one that I was my mother's baby and I died as a cot death. And I thought that was quite strange. I just remember like I was in the cot looking at my mother looking at me. And that, like, my mother died in this life when I was quite young. And the hypnotist would say that's very common, that if you were to die young in her life, she will come back and die young in your life, that it kind of revolves like that. So she said that would make sense. But also what's interesting, like, I know the stories with children, and I've heard a lot of these stories about children. My youngest, when he was two, had a a story that he was James O'Connor, Sorry, Jack O'Connor in a former life, but was very detailed about. And I'd say, well, what what kind of life did you have? And he said, I was a mechanic, but I fixed mostly lawnmowers and tractors. I didn't really fix cars. And he'd say, I was married with two children, but I didn't like my wife and my children weren't nice to me. <laughs> and then I said, well, how did you die in that life? And he said, well, I was coming home from the pub and I had too much to drink and I crashed into a ditch and I died. The detail of the it. The detail was unbelievable. And you'd be passing things and he'd say, I that looked like where I was when I was Jack O'Connor and I did something like that when I was Jack O'Connor and then once he turned four it was gone and you ask him now and he has absolutely no memory of it now but at the time it was hugely detailed now we went back to look but I mean Jack O'Connor is such a common name so we couldn't find anything but I always thought it was really interesting it's it's just Fascinating stuff altogether. Yeah, it'd be yeah. interesting to hear now if listeners have similar, especially from kids, because we tend to dismiss them a little bit. So it'd be interesting. I'm sure there's a lot of parents who have kind of similar kind of stories and we'd love to hear from them about it. Yeah, uh, Liam was on to say you're scaring the wits out of him again <laughs> this week. He's wondering how many lives have you had, Ali? You're like a cat. Oh, God knows. God <laughs> knows. I can't have too many more left. But go back to the traumatic one. Um, did that disturb you? I mean, did that stay with I you? I actually found it very reassuring. I liked it that, you know, because maybe if you believe in reincarnation, Incarnation, you think, well, all the people who are in my life now, are they going to be in my next life? And that kind of affirmed to me that, you know, my mother isn't gone and I might meet her again in another life the same way we met in previous lives. So maybe there's this kind of rotating theme of people that you have, which is nice in one way, but maybe bad in another. If, like if you have enemies in this life, will they follow you into the next life too? I don't know, but yeah. it's interesting. And do you have a consciousness of exactly. what went on? Exactly. And, uh, yeah. But if you start thinking about that, I mean, you'll never sleep again. Isn't that? That but frightens me look, at look night. Look at the state of me. <laughs> <laughs> like if we're in our next life, will we know the same that's, way we know we're sitting here in front of a microphone? That's the thing, you see. Will that's, we know? Yeah. 
and and that's what scares the wits out of me yeah. is that we won't have a consciousness of all the love and all the good exactly. stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But that, and like there's books as well on it and a lot of people will say and scientists will say birthmarks are also an indication of how you died in a previous life and they follow this with the studies they've done in India of children who have large birthmarks and have memories of a past life where they might have been shot or they might have been hit with something like in the face that would leave a birthmark. So they truly believe that birthmarks as well are an indication of how you died in your last life. I have a birthmark on, <gasps> on my ass. Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so, would that tie into the Civil War then? <laughs> possibly so indeed. <laughs> Ellie, that was fascinating. Thanks very Thanks, much for that. Thank you. And uh, if anybody wants to share with us uh, out there, 083 311 Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie if it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. Bridget is in Thurless and says, I agree with you, Fran, about the world being a dangerous place, or as they say, it, the world is in a state of chassis. A little bit of... Uh, <laughs> I love that saying, actually, um, from uh, the right, Sean O'Casey, isn't it? Uh, and uh, Juno and the Peacock and all of that. Uh, let me see, what else have we got here for you? Um, a brief comment on the plight of the Palestinian uh, people. I've watched the rise of the real far-right extremism with fear, but noted that the Israeli regime is the template of ethnic cleansing that most of the extremists aspire to implement in their respective countries. And that says a lot, a lot, and it's shocking, says Brian. My uh, good friend Mary Hanrahan was on to us from Feather to say, good morning, Fran. So disappointed to hear that Rosie... Uh, Donovan's shop is closing uh, the book market. It was such a wonderful bookshop and Rosie had her finger on the pulse of all the latest books and was also a great promoter of local books. I personally loved her second-hand book section. She was a whiz when it came to sorting frazzled parents with school books and she was, of course, a staunch supporter of the Feathered Historical Society's annual book fair every year. She will be sadly missed indeed. The winner of our Louise Morrissey tickets, Catherine O'Keefe of uh, Newtown in New in Nina, well done to you, Catherine and Louise, appearing uh, as part of her celebration of 35 years in country music at the Talbot Hotel in Clonmel on November the 3rd. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hours to protect.ie for more info. Ash dieback, it's, it's a, a very serious disease of ash. And I suppose this is evident from our ash trees now right around the country, if we have a look. And it's caused by a fungus, a fungal pathogen, um, which was previously called Shalara. Um, it's, it's, its scientific name is Hymenoscyphus fraxineus. Um, and it originated in Asia. And it, it established in Europe in, in the early 1990s. And today, it kind of covers most of the natural range of ash in Europe. It's, it's causing very high mortality rates in ash trees. Um, from an Irish perspective, it was first detected in 2012. 
And with its wind-borne spores and its rapid spread, it is now prevalent in every county, I said, throughout the island of, of Ireland. And it, I suppose its impact is it can affect trees of any age and, and in any setting, and younger trees coming more quickly, but it also seriously affects older trees. Um, if, if I just look at, like, how, what's the infection path of this disease? Um, it's that the spores from the fungus are released over the summer. They land on the foliage and they grow in through the ash leaves. They progress towards the twigs, the smaller twigs than the, the branches. And in many cases, they go, to, they go to the main stem and they cause a number of symptoms, wilting of leaves, crown and branch dieback and ultimate death of many trees. And I suppose um, the fact it's a pro progressive damage, what it does is it blocks up the vascular tissue in the trees, a bit like our own blood, blood uh, systems, mm. and it blocks the supply of water and nutrients, and this causes dieback and mortality in a very high number of trees. Yeah, so it's a, it, it's a huge problem, I suppose, and um, it's as you mentioned, it's infected uh, and trees in most counties in Ireland now at this stage, if not all. Um, all, yeah. Yeah, and this, uh, there, it's pretty irreversible in terms of, there's. I don't think there's any kind of treatment for it. So th this um, implementation plan that's been put forward and um, being looked into by the state, uh, what do you think can be done and what, what kind of should be done to kind of... Uh, as I said, it's irreversible, but to kind of um, prevent it from further spreading and is it a thing of planting new trees and hoping they don't get infected or what's the kind of overall kind of uh, aim and plan here? Okay, so um, like there, there have been two ski schemes um, in place, uh, one um, after 2012 and another I think in 2020, but I suppose affected owners have communicated their additional needs and, and certainly support uh, additional supports with, with regard to their situation. So between June and September this year, uh, the Minister of State, Pippa Hackett, uh, commissioned an independent review of the support schemes, and the review was to provide the Minister with advice and, I suppose, recommendations on the way forward, which would be in line with our new forest strategy. And... The review group met with a range of stakeholders, organisations, but importantly, it met with forest owners that were affected by ash dieback, meeting them both face-to-face -face and out, actually, in their affected ash forests. And the, the group, I think, also received written submissions. The report has been finalised and, and recently published. And I understand Mr. Minister McConnell has indicated that he is working with his colleague, uh, Minister of State Pippa Hackett to bring forward solutions um, that I suppose really recognise the unique difficulties farmers impacted by ash dieback face. And I so I, I understand the work is ongoing with department officials towards implementing the recommendations of this review. Now we won't have time to go into in detail but there are 13 recommendations that are available in, uh, to see in the report and they include for example a rapid and coordinated national response. Um, it's recommending the safe and comprehensive clearance and re-establishment of affected woodlands. So while we can't put in um, ash plants again, um, there is work, Togaskar engaged in work in terms of 
identifying trees with a high level of tolerance for future planting, but it would be a case of looking at what species are suitable. Um, the, the, the recommendations also include assessment of enhanced supports for owners, and I suppose to identify the broadest possible scope to resolve the situation. And another thing I suppose that's important is using this situation as a learning opportunity in the context of if there was potential future risks, for example, um, vigilance for any future threats, risk analysis and having contingencies in place and looking, as you asked there, at appropriate species and possibly appropriate species mixes, which when we're planting could build resilience in our future forests. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. Now, just before you go, some breaking news for you, and uh, just uh, harking back to my conversation with uh, Dr. Connor Reedy at the very top of uh, the program. Uh, the breaking news is 130 on trolleys in UHL today. 130. So that's a record. And there will be more on that in our lunchtime news. That's it for me. Ali produced. Uh, Stephen's on the way with the time tunnel. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Look after yourselves, won't you? Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Stay